People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Good to have you with us this week and we have quite a few guests lined up. But before we go into that, our reminder, our text number is 2057 for your feedback or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And while we are at housekeeping, this is a heads up. There is an announcement coming up soon for a further promo drive on Reality Check. So you would need to be signed up to our mailing list to stay abreast of what's coming. But uh, for the for now, good morning, Don. Morning. Nothing stands still in uh, RCR, does it? We're, we're moving on. Good work. We are moving on. So how's your week been? You know, nothing much to do. It's just carving, coming along, beautiful southern weather, (laughs) nothing much at all. We should never complain about the weather because uh, all the pundits say, look at them, they're talking about that damn weather again and they deny climate change. (laughs) Gosh, you can't win. You can't win. No, look, everything's great. Um, It is a bit moist down in the south now but and the snow sadly um had had gone from the hills really and uh for the skiers i hope it comes back soon but um because you know they need a season two you know they're like farming they need to farm the snow when it's there mm-hmm. but um yeah we've oh, had how's, some... how's your week been done have you struck anything lucky in uh racing <laughs> no nothing <laughs> nothing lucky yeah, i'm waiting for the melbourne cup reality check that's what i'm after that reality check that's my big one that's my big one you know what i always say there's there's five bucks from me on whatever you are yeah 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 (laughs) yeah i don't i don't want to take your hard-earned money and i just i might just put it in my pocket uh but isn't it interesting um the media has been full of little pearls this week um You've got a few, I've got a few, but one thing I should highlight before we even get too far down is I've been saying uh, Dr. Tom Sheehan didn't get much, uh, if in fact, none uh, that we could see column inches in the media in New Zealand for his recent tourist discussions. Um, mm-hmm. 
his forums that he ran. Well, I was wrong. The Gore Ensign uh, had a little article about him, didn't give him too much credit and put someone in to try and overshadow him, but at least the Gore Ensign came through. Well done, Gore Ensign. I know we should be grateful for when we get a bit of uh, free media space, Mm. honestly. Though I thought that uh, they really didn't have a lot of substance to how they tried to counter uh, Tom Sheehan's debate there, reading through the lines, uh, what did it say? That uh, a ridiculous amount of warming is supposedly caused by a livestock that's wrong, but there is a major consensus said uh, Climate Change Commission Chief Scientist Dr. Grant Blackwell. Mm. The consensus of the world's climate scientists was that the earth was warming due to greenhouse gas emissions and humans were primarily responsible. Well, and whenever someone uses the word consensus, we know that uh, they've lost their marbles because science doesn't work by consensus. And by the way, um, I should talk about, um, if I can get it up, I think it's... I might have just lost it for the moment. I might have to come back to it. But the IPCC mm-hmm. has put out a report and it's assessment report six um, showing that uh, clearly the stuff that we're told is happening to the world isn't happening to the world at all. There is no <laughs> signals for the floods and the, the mayhem that you read about. It's just um, not not happening. So I'll, I yeah, I've found it now. I'll go back mm-hmm. to it if I can. Um so this is what they concluded in uh, the report, uh, the, the recent report, uh, Assessment Report 6, Working Group 1, Chapter 12, Table 12.12. The IPCC has concluded that the signal of climate change has not yet emerged beyond natural variability for the following phenomena, river floods, heavy precipitation and pluvial floods, landslides, drought, all types, severe windstorms, tropical cyclones, sand and dust storms, heavy snowfall and ice storms, hail, snow avalanche, coastal flooding, marine heat waves. And furthermore, they say the emergence of a climate change signal is not expected under the extreme scenario RCP 8.5 by 2100 for any of these phenomena except heavy precipitation and pluvial floods, and that is only with medium confidence. So, listeners, you think I'm crazy, gone after um, down at rabbit holes for months on the show. There it all is, written by the very people that I haven't trusted for a long, long time. They're starting to stay say stuff that actually um, is important for everything you're being told uh, in terms of your governance of the country, uh, your uh, your your local authorities, uh, your, your electricity supplies, doesn't matter what it is, there is no signal coming from any of those um, elements that says we need to be doing much. And so I take it right back to my original points. It's around adaptation to what's around us at the time and uh, we just get on with life and stop trying to do what John Kerry is trying to do in the States, cripple the country with his $1.6 quadrillion nonsense of trying to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I liked what John Kerry was called in the Senate, Don. Grifter. Uh, a grifter. A grifter, Kerry. Have, have, have you ever heard a number 
1.6 quadrillion. I assume that's a thousand trillion, trillion. times 1.6. How easily it rolls off the lung- tongues. It's not their money. Not their money. Sorry, that and that came in early in this program. I had no intention of speaking about that, <laughs> but see, I just can't resist. It's my big if if we haven't been greenwashed in, in an unbelievable way for the last 25 years, uh, I think that shows we have. So the very body, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whose dictates dictate our Ministry of Environment and all our policies, itself says it cannot find a climate change signal for all of these weather phenomena. And yet we have our chief scientist from our Climate Change Commission, Dr. Grant Blackwell, saying that the earth was warming primarily due to human emissions. That the, that's the consensus. Where are some fact checkers when you need them, Don? Well, there's plenty <laughs> of fact There is plenty of fact checkers. They mm. just aren't the ones that are advising the, the, the government or the local authorities around this country. There's plenty of people trying to do the right thing, be honest and upfront and present data that's uncorrupted mm. and un- untainted. But we're not hearing it, are we? I mean, that had to come out of um, the IPCC searching by some of our colleagues mm. um, who do the hard yards. They look for the stuff. Why can't our local authorities? Why can't our Minister for Climate Change? Why can't the Climate Commission look for this stuff? And tell the New Zealand public we're chasing a silly, um, silly agenda here. It's just, it's just not right. Um, we we sure we should do what we've always done: adapt to what's around us. We're not nomads. We're not going to be shifting anywhere soon from New Zealand. When yeah, no nomads in the old days did move to where the weather suited them and the climate suited them. But um, yeah, we don't have to do that. Yeah. Now, yeah, thank you, listeners, for your feedback. Don and I have uh, we have three guests today. So before we go any further, I should probably uh, spell those out. We are going Dutch in t- today's show. So we have a Dutch horticulturalist from Central Otago, Hans, who will be our first guest today. Hans is going to be followed by a Dutch MP. And further on, we are also going to have Bryce McKenzie, co-founder of Groundswell, coming on today because uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you have heard that Groundswell's put out the call and this is unprecedented. I've never heard of a supermarket boycott in my 15 years in New Zealand to boycott Countdown for a period of two weeks. Yeah, and so that's about um, effectively Countdown are saying they want uh, farmers that supply them through their processes maybe or or directly to account for their emissions and report them effectively or at least know them Mm. and and i think the way i see it that's the ultimate uh virtue signaling and of course groundswell are saying farmers have had enough they've just had enough they know that countdown uh has assessed uh the scope three emissions at 98 percent inside the farm gate and of course, they're using metrics that we've talked about on the show that just don't add up. So, uh, look, good on Groundswell and good on the, their supporters for um, saying, look, we're we're sick of this uh, being pushed into the corner all the time and made the scapegoat. Uh, let's hope they get support. And you know, 
that'll come out in the interview. But one that's come out in our feedback uh, posts uh, this week was from um, Geraldine in Fokatani, and uh, they talked about a recent guest they had in uh, the Wakatani area on a farm, uh, the law farm, and it was interestingly, it was. Um, uh, I just get that up to that article. Uh, that was around the Perry Laboratories owners who had come to New Zealand. They run Perry Agricultural Laboratories, have interacted with New Zealanders uh, doing soil tests and herbage tests since 1982. They visited out. Uh, that area, look, on the Rangitaiki Plains where the Alan Law and his brother farm, and they made comments like they can't believe how hard it is for New Zealand farmers to make a living anymore, uh, how different it has been in the last five or seven years. And so, um, yeah, it was nice, Geraldine, that you've you've found that and sent that into us because it's a common story all around the country. Um, yeah, and mm. so... Yeah, we 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 like that sort of feedback. We had another bit of feedback from Donald Bray, uh, North Canterbury, I think. He said, you guys are providing the facts as to the reality in New Zealand and globally, and I commend you and thank you for your work. Without you in the rural sector and also reaching into the urban space, we would have an information vacuum in terms of delivery in an effective way outside of social media in an effective way. As a semi-retired farmer and being part of the urban-dominated support group in North Canterbury, awake to the attack on our country and its people, I find that it's almost an echo chamber effect and that we are speaking to the same subset of the community whenever we speak to different communities. Being of mm. largely older, yeah, that's true, older mm. bracket, and he says, and that's me too, and I'd say I concur with the continual challenge of gaining a critical mass of people who are prepared to go beyond the meeting venue and stick their heads up. Keep up the great work. Uh, you guys bring a breath of fresh air. Hey, well, we'll do our best, Donald, and thank you for that feedback. Absolutely. Much appreciated. Uh, so what do I have? Ah, a pull or someone caught from you, Don, last time. And I think Tony also said something to the same effect. To repeat, uh, Don and Just Read, the host is being eaten alive by the parasites, the gradual creep of socialism. Ouch. Yep, yeah. that is. Or you can, you know, you want to put a bit more civilly, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. But mm. whatever it is, the productive are being eaten by the parasites. Yep. Uh, yep. You look at the uh, the skeleton of a wildebeest mm. in the in the plains of Africa after it's been eaten by the lions, and you uh, there's not much left, and that's what farmers feel like. Yeah. There is someone who has asked us that who was the author of the book How to Get Expelled for Children, and that was Ian Plymer. Ah. We had on last month, in fact, nearly six weeks ago now. And all of these books are available on Fishpond by Ian Plymer. Also, I believe Australia does have Amazon. So those are, he's written quite a few books. And uh, Don, which one do you have, Ian Plymer's? Uh, I have, yeah. I, uh, gosh, just have no, my, sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah, it's behind me, but I can't just see it. Um, interestingly, there's another group in California, I think, uh, is it under the CO2 coalition and Greg White, White, White or Wrightstone? Mm. They are authoring books, simple little books for, for children as well on the benefits of CO2, or, you know, what CO2 and other gases do. And I've yep. watched that one of their video clips. Very, very useful. Now, 
you know, if I, we can find that, we'll put it up as well, yeah. I think. Yep. In fact, the full name of that uh, full title of the book is How to Get Expelled from School, A Guide to Climate Change for Pupils, Parents, and Punters. And incidentally, this book is uh, was printed first in 2012, so it's over a decade ago. I am most recently uh, reading his book, Green Murder, by Ian Plymer. There's yeah. also others like Not for Greens and uh, this because some of these books are older, there is Kindle edition available also for those who might prefer that. I must admit, I prefer the good old page turner, the satisfaction of having something <laughs> tangible in my hands. Me too. I So the one I have is Heaven on Earth. Heaven and Earth. Interestingly, another very good book to read is Taxing Ear by mm. um, by Bob Carter and, uh, and others. So hmm, there's all, lots of good books. You'd wonder why it's been so hard to get the truth out. Into the, into the mainstream. I know. Mm. And you can't just walk into a New Zealand bookseller and pick up any of these books. I had to order uh, Green Murder from Fishpond. Wasn't available here. Right. So, yeah. Gosh. Not, yep. not quite politically right to be in Whitcalls or Paper Plus. But right. another thing Don and I spoke about last time was the Let's Get Wellington Moving <laughs> project. And we've had a few... Uh, remarks on this one from listeners, but I'll read this one out from Joyce. Let's get Wellington moving. Great topic. Wellington is being destroyed. It is overflowing with highly paid public servants. The mind-boggling $7.5 billion just being wasted is a disgrace. The walking, cycling pathway is being constructed alongside the harbor highway, and it's an absolute waste of ratepayers' money. Who in their right mind, will use it in a howling southerly. This should have been put to a public referendum. The cost is prohibitive and the budget is already out of control. Such squandering of ratepayer dollars must stop. The Golden Mile of Wellington used to be a draw card, and now we are seeing more and more businesses either leaving or closing up for good. Wellington CBD is dying. When will these councillors and mayors and arrogant politicians wake up and listen to the people they are there to serve. I truly despair at the debt future generations are being saddled with. Joyce, I've had to paraphrase some of that just to keep it civil for our audiences here, but I, I get your sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could say they're um, they're facing it one dog at a time. I mean, I I shouldn't I shouldn't be so glib, but seeing the next story was um, that the the uh, mayor wants to take her dog into the council chambers or in, at least to her office. And, uh, you know, I don't know, call me old-fashioned, Jasper, but it seems that standards are slowly dropping. What do you I, think? Sorry, I, I transitioned into that. That was a, seg- uh, that was a segue. Don't use those <laughs> words when we go. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, no, let's stick to old-fashioned English, the one uh, I understand. No, I I think once you start going down this, suddenly, you know, you have open offices, you have bring a pet to work day, you have this day and that day. And again, how does all of this add value to the rate payer, the one who's footing your salaries? I just come back to that. Uh, That needs to be a simple barometer of whether something should be done or not done. You don't add value, you don't do it. Yeah. I agree. You don't add staff if they haven't got a real job to do. And, you know, sadly, you know my cynical view about real jobs uh, in local government. And I see that uh, uh, one of her, one of the 
press statements is um, she's in New York, the mayor of Wellington, and so far it's like she's she's at a learning um, learning for mayors. Uh, it's like mayor school on steroids. And so I went through some of the comments, and further down, uh, there's a guy Stephen Edlin's posted in Wellington. Mayors come and go. That's why the CEO is the real power in Wellington. All they have to do is play the long game, long three-year game, and bingo, there's a new mayor. Then they can educate them and the point, uh, point them in the direction the CEC's fit. Now, I have said that for years, Jasper, because I know that what used to be called the Society of Local Government Managers held all the um, strings for the puppets in the council. Um, and sure enough, it's changed its name. God knows what it is, but... Um, I'm cynical about it. Are you that, calling that's how me it works. Are you calling me a puppet? Oh well, I, I, I when I said that, I thought, oh, I'm going to get <laughs> got out here. Uh, but but that's where all the rule books, all the direction comes out of there. They've got everyone by the short and curlies at that the point. The direction needs to come from the ratepayers. That's where the consultation mm. needs to happen. Mm. That's something I will unabashedly say at whatever forum there is to be. When people think local government, they think roads, trash, you know, basic infrastructure and all of this. But yeah, it is, it's interesting. So Tori Fano is in New York with 40 other males for a leadership program. When she had put it up on Facebook on the night, she said, I'm really excited to let you know that I've been accepted for the Bloomberg Howard City Leadership initiated with 40 other mayors around the world, we are focusing on poverty reduction, affordable housing, infrastructure, climate change, resource management. And as you said, Don, it's like mayor school on steroids. Mm. And all expenses are being covered by the Bloomberg Howard City Leadership Initiative. Now, this organization is not elected. It is a private, so-called philanthropic initiative it is a globalist initiative. And what business do we have going there? Hmm? Well, it, it this is just one of the hundreds of businesses we could find. Um, Jasper, if uh, if I let you loose, I know that uh, you would find <laughs> them. They, there is so many of these junkets, so many of them, and they're all heading to be educated by uh or involving themselves with the unelected influences of the world. So I, I looked up uh, city leadership, this program that, uh, and uh, you know, Mayor Fano is not the first one. We have others who have gone. We have other cities in New Zealand that have joined up to this. So Michael R. Bloomberg, the 108th mayor of New York City and the founder of this uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, he said, Around the world, cities are growing in size and importance, and mayors are leading the charge in addressing the most pressing issues we face, from creating jobs to fighting climate change. This is aimed at helping them succeed. And what will they be studying here? So the research, crafting public narrative to enable collective action. Cross-border collaboration. What does a private multi-millionaire many times over have what businesses do you have getting all these mayors to come it's almost like you know going and paying homage in a coat to uh, your lord and master that's it's probably a crass way of putting it on but our mayors our MPs are answerable only to New Zealanders why are these junkets on 
Well, you know, the world is uh, develops and advances itself by the uh, evolution of ideas, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. But uh, my view is this, that as we talked about just a few moments ago, or I talked about, uh, these unelected influences are having far too great a say. And of course, I link it right back to climate change policies, because that all has its genesis in the same sort of box. Mm. Um, and uh, we, we are letting these people have influences over us that we've never asked for yep. and don't deserve. And we haven't got the checkbook to pay for them either. Um, so, yeah, while it's good to uh, go and live, learn from other countries and learn from other people, uh, What's the value proposition? Uh, don't know. Uh, interestingly, there's a, a delegation of four from Invercargill gone to Japan right now to mm-hmm. do the sister city relationship. You know, some people would say that's not that useful either, but um, they've done it for years. So, uh, you know, and I imagine lots of other places around New Zealand do it. Is that just a junket to Jasprit or is, is it really relationship building? Paying good ratepayer money for relationship building for what? Manage? Why do we need to have these networks? Uh, all these, and again, if I look at Michael Bloomberg, the one on you know his philanthropy is backing this uh, Harvard cities, whatever they call themselves. The let me get the name right, Bloomberg Center for Cities. Now, Michael Bloomberg himself, he's a UN United Nations Special Envoy, and the COP twenty eight. Uh, this was this organization was also the COP28 partner to tackle climate change. So this gentleman, Michael Bloomberg, who's hosting all of these mayors, is the United Nations Secretary General Special Envoy on Climate Ambitions and Solutions. So this ultimately, no matter which rabbit hole I go down, Don, it's like all roads lead to United Nations here. All roads lead to United Nations, and we've got 120 MPs in New Zealand who won't acknowledge it. At least in Australia, (laughs) they've got politicians that do acknowledge it. Um, And at least in in the Netherlands, they've got uh, politicians that do acknowledge it. Uh, Why don't we? I don't get it. No. And going back to the few emails that we got on the Mm. Let's Get Wellington Moving project, such as this one from Joyce that I had to paraphrase because, hmm. yeah, to keep it civil, you need to realize where is all of this coming from. So this particular forum that the mayor has gone on, it says that Bloomberg will support local leaders, including the mayors, countries like us, governors, like in the US, CEOs, to take ambitious action, demonstrate climate leadership, mobilize financing for urban climate projects. Mm-hmm. Hello, let's get Wellington moving. Showcase scalable climate solutions. Is this an indoctrination school here? Uh, of course. Yep, without doubt. Without doubt, it's about indoctrination. And, you know, I've um, I've been to forums like this in my life, and oh, you come away. You have? No, yeah, absolutely. And you, when you're naive, you go to these things, and you actually don't understand the agendas at play. Mm. Uh, it's only in the cold light of day that I've... Um, I can now say uh, clearly I was duped, and I'm not too proud to say I was. Uh, but but we can do better, and we can do better by having a country, a sovereign country called New Zealand. It's got its own borders. Let's do our own stuff, 
and stop pandering to the needs of, they call it... Uh, Unelected globalists. Yeah, globalists, all right. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do multilateral trade um, negotiations. Now, I thought that was fantastic too under the World Trade Organization um, banner. But, yeah, I'm starting to lose interest in um, trade uh, negotiations the way we've done yeah. it in the past. And I like the free trade agreement we've just done with the EU. Uh, it sounds sounds useful on paper, but it's multilateral. Um, and I'm not sure that I can support multilateralism anymore. I think we should do country to country and and respect the the country of country to country trade. That's what we mm. should do. But mm. I, I know that will not be a common um, a common sentiment sentiment around the country. No, it mm. won't be. In fact, I've been in the in the company of a former Minister of Trade in the last few days, and uh, clearly that's not his sentiment because he's mm. proud of the the um, the uh, TPs, uh, CCP, I think that's what it's yeah. uh, acronym is. He's proud of that. So, Trans- look, we're a long yeah. way off that. But but isn't it interesting? In recent weeks, we've even had um, one of our lead trade negotiators say that the WTO, the way we were having the free trade agreements uh, for the last 20-odd years is not... Is the not golden real, period is over. The golden yeah. period is over. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I'd, I'd I'd go in for one last thing before we move on from let's mm-hmm. get Wellington moving. And hey, in case you haven't realized, it's being replicated in Hamilton. So there's talks of you know much uh, wider bike lanes and buses stopping in the middle mm. of the road. So have mm. a look at uh, what Wellington Council is proposing. But uh, sorry, Hamilton Council is proposing, but Wellington. Last year, Wellington got $1 million US, so about a million and a half, or was it? Yeah, so draft something like that in prize money when they won the Bloomberg Mural Challenge for designing the boldest and the most ambitious urban innovations, which would encompass... I'm just trying. It's quite a mouthful. The wordy paragraph that that's there, including economic recovery and growth, health, well-being, climate, environment, and gender justice. Mm-hmm. So last year, mayors from 631 cities in 99 countries submitted their ideas. 50 champion cities was chosen. Wellington, you're one of them, and Wellington's winning model, a digital twin, a virtual representation of systems and things that make up the city. So they created some sort of a 3D model, which would have real-time data from sensors and so on to make better decisions how Wellington works. And uh, granted, that time the mayor was Andy Foster. He was delighted that they are one of the first 15 cities, whatever that means, and get uh, $1 million US for the council. Amazing. Well, I think, uh, amazing. I think the ratepayers of Wellington would like the check of $7.4 billion throw in their way and they might buy into the system uh, of improving Wellington. But um, by the way, I, I I haven't listened to it fully. I think mm-hmm. if listeners want to listen to an interview, uh, it was in the last couple of days, Paul Brennan interviewed Barry Wilson. And I think mm-hmm. that would be something that listeners should perhaps, if they haven't, go back and mm-hmm. play the replay. Yeah. It's on so, the same topic. Yeah. It's, it's good to just sort of trace where your let's get mm. Wellington moving, where it began from and where mm. it's going to end and who is directing it. And it's not part of the C40 either, is it? <laughs> no, that's it's a, not part. That, that's, that's, that's Auckland. Another one. Auckland is a that's C40. Auckland's bag. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Amazing. Gosh. Right. I think it's uh, it's time to take a break. And when we come back, Ton and I, Ton, do you want to introduce a guest? Yeah, we're, we're going to uh, interview, uh, have a, a guest is Hans Beemond. He's a uh, former orchardist, actually, uh, for another company. But in his own right, he's a um, vegetable grower from Ernsklue, which is, eh, what would you say, just east of the Clyde Dam. Um, on mm-hmm. some very nice soil in a very lovely area. And Hans uh, came to New Zealand in 84 with nothing, and he's got a story to tell. He's a hard case, and uh, just hope you enjoy him. Yep, and he's our first Dutchman for the day, and he'll yeah. be followed by another one in due course. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And welcome back to uh, RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. Remember to give your texts at 2057 and email uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio. It's not often we get guests from uh, who have got a life that's uh, and a, a work profile that spans both hemispheres, but we have one today, and his name is Hans Beemond. Came from a farm or a market garden area south of Rotterdam. And he's now in Ernsklu in central Otago. And I can say in Ernsklu, um, Hans, my father took me there way back when I was a little guy because he had an old mate from his army days in the Second World War called Ernsty Weavers. And yeah. uh, I, re- I recall taking him taking us there in the 1960s. So been to Ernsklu a few times. Anyway, um, great to have you on the show. You've obviously lived a, um, a varied life uh, coming from from a very intense area below Rotterdam. I've looked at it on a map. It looks very, very uh, compact and sort of organized. And, you know, you can see the market gardens from Google Maps. What was your reason for coming to New Zealand in 1984? Nobody else wanted me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Funny. No, no, I I didn't see, um, I was not able to take over the farm. My brother took over the farm, uh, the small farm. We had a really small farm because uh, the government, well, I say stole a bit of us, our land in those days already. They uh, they needed uh, quite a big area of land to put all the mud, but they took out of the harvest in Rotterdam to to uh, uh, put that somewhere. So they put another dike and they filled all our land up with mud. So, so the farm ended up only about 10 hectares. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I, there was not enough room. I, I started looking, I went on a holiday to Norway too for a, for a big bike holiday. I, uh, I biked all the way to the North Cup. And when I came back, I thought this place is just getting too small for me. <laughs> so we, we started looking uh, for immigrating also for, I had nothing, like we had nothing to lose. So I looked at Canada first, but yeah, I think the minimum amount of money I had to bring was about $300,000 or killed in those days or be able to employ six people. So that was out of the question. And then um, I said, oh, we'll go to Australia. So that was in 1984, but in 1984, Australia, the um, immigration stopped. 
So they, they only took two or three trades and nothing to do with, uh, with what I, uh, with horticulture or nothing. And then I saw somewhere, like I'd never heard of the place, New Zealand. I said, oh, this, this other place is not far from Australia. It's called New Zealand. So we got a book and we looked in the book. I thought, oh, that, that might be a nice place to go. I said to my then uh, girlfriend, I said, well, we'll go to New Zealand for a year and, and then we go to Australia. See, if that is uh, possible. So, so we came out. I managed to get um, uh, permission to immigrate, and my government paid everything to get rid of me, sort of thing. <laughs> was, so that we, was that common? Was that common? They paid to get rid of you. Yeah, the, well, they uh, they actually paid for the immigration. So mm. I think the whole thing cost me about five hundred gilden, which is about two hundred fifty dollars at the moment. And that was actually for uh, I got a cubic meter of um, of uh, car shipping, so what I, yes, what I for as well. So it was a cubic meter. So mm. we, we stuffed everything in and said, We're away. <laughs> so, um, well, I just left and uh, I went on my own because together we didn't have as much chance. They said they wanted, because I had horticultural experience in 1984, they were New Zealand was looking to diversify more into horticulture. That's why, why I managed to get in. So, yeah, I just left and um, I arrived in Christchurch with a few words of English and this this lady of the immigration service picked me up and she said, oh, I got a job for you organizing COVID and all this sort of stuff. I said, oh, yeah. Said, she said $80 a week and, um, and, and free board. I thought, oh, that doesn't sound, sound too, too much. But what actually happened, this is going to be a reasonable long story, but couple of days before uh, I left, I went to a wedding and I met I met a guy there. He said, oh, my brother's living in Clyde. I said, oh, yeah. He said, I'll give you the address. If, you, if you're stuck, go and see him. I've never seen the guy. So I arrived there in Christchurch. I said to the lady, um, I'd, I'd just go for a quick look for a couple of days um, because I arrived on Friday or Monday that farmer was going to pick me up. So I thought, bugger this. I'm, I hopped on the bus and I ended up in Clyde. Well, before I got to Clyde, of course, it was June. I drove through Lawrence about 8 o'clock at night in June, and I looked outside, I, I thought, shit, the only thing missing here is those tumbleweeds blowing down the road because I didn't see anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I ended up in Clyde. And then those, that guy, I arrived there at 10 o'clock at night, and I was, I was a bit lost because I left on my arm and... So I knocked on some door. I said, I need that. I got to find Hazlitt Street in, in the middle of winter. He said, oh, just go over there. So <laughs> I found this house. And I knocked on the door, 10 o'clock at night, and the door opens. And I said, uh, I'm Hans Beemont. I've just immigrated from Holland, and I don't know where to go. <laughs> and he, yeah. his mouth just opened, and he said, come in. He put a bottle of whiskey on the table, and he said, tell me who you are. And... I told him, he said, your mother is my second cousin. I didn't know that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, he introduced me to the other Dutchies here, and the next day I had the job in Orchard for, for twice as much. Well, well, so no. Fortuitous, yeah. fortuitous. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and so that was on an orchard, and obviously in the middle of winter there's um, a whole lot of maintenance to work, work to do on an orchard. Uh, and... 
you came from probably sub-zero every day um, right through to summers in the 30s, um, quite a variation. Yeah, yeah. well, I came from the summer in the winter here because June is the mm. middle of winter, so I was uh, I was pruning, of course, for uh, about three or four months. And then, well, that, that's how it all started. And then I, and then I met Colm after, uh, and I, I started for him after a year, build up his orchard here in Wensclaw. Yep. That's that's sort of how it all started. And I've never been to Australia, by the way. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I like it so much. It was just it was a great adventure, and uh, it is a great a great country. Like I, I like hunting and fishing and the outdoors. And I thought I ended up in paradise, really. Well, so, I think you might have, and and of course, your passion is horticulture. So you yeah. lasted about ten years. Um, and you went into horticulture. How's that been? I mean, I've I've read one article where uh, 2003, I think it was, you had a plague of aphids in your lettuces, and in other yeah. years you've had floods and all sorts of things. What's yeah, what's it yeah, been and like? I, and I didn't know it was 83. 83, I just about got wiped, wiped out by that. Um, uh, we had the new uh, aphid in the lettuce. There was I, I can't remember the name, but we. Nobody, like all over New Zealand, we, it was big damage. We didn't know what to do. Mm. So I virtually lost my whole um, um, lettuce crop that year. And, and um, so I I went possuming, possuming uh, to, to sort of stay afloat. And then the next year, of course, um, values went, like land values went through the roof. Mm. And I mean, I, I had a, I bought the second property uh, two years earlier, but got wiped out by by the lettuce aphid, and uh, I managed to sell that for for um, a big profit, and that put uh, put us back on our feet. So that's how we. Uh, it's been an an up and down ride, like for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes when you're an investor and a hard worker. Often, uh, you've got to go with the go with the flow. They say you have highs and lows, yep. and you know people yep. in suits don't just quite often see it that way. But no. uh, there you, you've done no. well. Yeah. And I was listening to you, Hans, and you know we followed 25 years after you did. My husband and I came here in 2009, and it's eerily similar what you said. So we first looked at Canada. Manitoba had a agricultural investment pathway cost $300,000. When you said yeah, the words, yeah. it struck me. And my husband and I looked at it. But, you know, we were leaving corporate careers and we wanted to go to a place where we had no one to say. I told you so if we fell flat on our faces. So we yeah. slipped up New Zealand. Australia, again, we had friends. And we came out here. So he came first. I landed in June, uh, July. I came, I still remember the day. I was taking the taxi at the airport at Delhi. And the taxi the radio was on and it says today Delhi is expected to cross 50 degrees. And I land here and it's freezing cold. They lost my <laughs> luggage in Thailand. And yeah, it's it's been 15 years. But I, I can tell you at that point when I, because my father-in-law, he told my husband and me, he says, look, if you too, despite your corporate careers, if you want to go farming, you need to leave India. You'll soon be farming among high rises. And that's it. Yeah. Land in Punjab is still valued at most agricultural land at over 400,000 New Zealand a hectare. You don't yeah, need yeah. inflation farming, that sort of a land. And he told us, he said, look, you'll have to leave the country if you really, yeah. this is what you're keen to do. So we left Manitoba. He said, nah, not putting 300,000 there. Came to New Zealand. He came first. But I now look back and see, and just like you, 
I thought it was paradise and I still do to a, to a very large extent. But things in farming have certainly changed from the time I have. And as a migrant, I can often see that what I thought I left behind, all that craziness, unable to be able to farm or be productive. I see similar things happening now in New Zealand that, you know, we are not heading to a good place. Do you share that sentiment? Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, what I left Holland for is now coming here. I, I feel a bit like that. All the regulations and um, my whole life, I've tried to make difficult things easy. Mm. But these things, these days, it is making easy things difficult. That seems to be how how uh, how life is. And uh, I still always try to make difficult things easy. But everybody else seems to be against me, like the the council or whatever. Like. Mm. Um, if uh, I'm lucky now, one of my uh, my sons is come in with me. Otherwise, I, because I'm 65 now, otherwise I would just say, uh, see you later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, now I try to keep it because if we stop it, it is very hard to. That's the thing too. If you stop it, it's very hard to start up. Hmm. Like once you're in it, it is easier to keep going than start from scratch. Like if you got all your papers. It's just a matter of taking a few boxes every year and try to keep going. But that is so. So it has been profitable for you during these years. You've got seventeen hectares now. I think of very good soils. I imagine. I think I can visualize the areas you'll be in, and and it has been profitable most years. Or have you had some years Uh, where you think, what's it all about? Well, um, I got eight kids, and I'm not a Catholic. But I got eight kids, so we. <laughs> it has always been a, a family thing. Like uh, I used to plant everything with the kids, so I'd no no labor costs and everything. If if I um, would have had to employ somebody, it would not not have been profitable. But right. um, you know what the market gardener say? A market gardener is a lifestyle with the occasional good year, much like farming, I suppose. But that's all it is. But the last. Yeah. I, I was uh, very lucky here in central Otago. I, um, from the first day our uh, supermarket started, I was a supplier. Like just a small, small town, of course, and um, like good connections. We've always been looked after really good by our local supermarket. Mm. And then they started um, a second one in Cromwell. The same, the same family and, and the same there. So we, we sort of in a quite unique uh, position, be close to our uh, customers, mm. and and they uh, they've looked after us, and we look after them, and that right. and that is not not really for uh, for uh, many market gardeners in New Zealand, of course. But we we got to go through the market too with a certain amount. But um, our local uh, our locals um, custom is our uh, is our strength. Because we close, and if something goes wrong, you're right there. We can yeah. fix it up easy, and yeah, that, so, that's going really well. But uh, so, so, do you uh, label yourself an organic farmer or a uh, no. what you're termed conventional horticulturalist? Yes, yes, yes. And but I explain everybody too. I, I I eat it myself. Like it is not as if we uh, <laughs> if we arrange it to uh, to our customers or anything we eat all our stuff ourselves and mm. i'm not a great fan of um, 
of of spraying, but it got to be done. Like mm. I, I I remember when they started organics in uh, in Holland, and um, I asked a good friend of mine. He, he was a contract sprayer. I said, "What what's the difference now over there?" I was already here. I said, "What's the difference between an organic grower and a conventional grower?" He said, "Well, all the organic growers spray at night." Oh, gee. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's going to go down too flash. But anyway, good good that you're candid no, about it. It was all in the beginning, of course. That's not anymore because now you've got regulations and, and even uh, our produce gets checked all the time. Right. So, that's, but, so, I mean, that's all in the beginning. That's all <laughs> how, we, how we get to this point. That was, you might say, before greenwashing became a thing. <laughs> exactly. um, anyway, hey, so look. Can we just move on? I mean, great story for for the locals, and great you've made your your life in New Zealand and su- survived. And and I do concur. Labor force, family labor force, has paid the way for a lot of a lot of farm families around New Zealand. And of course, generally those kids that have been brought up doing stuff with mum and dad in the dirt on the farms, they end up being really tough um, or smart people. They go into the world and do good yeah, stuff. Yeah. But but yeah. what I'd like to know is we're getting a lot of news out of the, uh, or the last five years especially, there's been a lot of news coming out of Holland about the angst that's been created by the Rutter government. And the more recently, the tractor protests uh, that are massive and the blocking of highways by farmers, uh, all for this nitrogen, I, I I think it's nitrous oxide reduction, actually, or is it nitrate leaching thereafter? I can't quite fathom that. But anyway, it's around emissions profiling. Exactly, and it doesn't exist. That's the problem. They've created the problem what doesn't exist. They're, they're using the. I heard the expert the other day. He said the the levels in Holland are dead tough. If a sparrow comes on your land and fart and and does his thing on it, you're over the limit. <laughs> That's how tough the limit is. If you go across the border to Germany, there is nothing like there is no the same levels. Don't account there. The, it is an um, invented thing to get the people of the land, and that's what it is. So, the, so, so I've read about this tri-state ambition, where there's yes. um, three three cities are trying to sort of join up, uh, and they do cross borders. Um, is that is that a real thing, or is it? Uh, you know, well, clearly it's being talked about. Has it has it already started the momentum toward these um, tri? these three big cities joined up? Well, I think it's already started, of course, because the amount of people that drain, in like the last eight years, they've drained in more than two million uh, sort of um, uh, people from the Middle East and, and Libya, more than two million people. So um, it's already starting, the urbanization, it is already becoming a big city. All the little towns grow together. Uh, mm. It is talked about, but that's the problem, that even the farmers, what they take, they don't really know what's happening with the land. They don't know if they're going to build a house. It is all under, sort of, uh, under, under cover. Nobody really knows, well, somebody will know, but the farmers themselves don't even know what's actually happening with their land. Yeah, it's, it's a mystery, isn't it? Uh, they're being offered, I gather, 120% of market value, but I assume the market value has already been tainted by by the negativity. So what is 120% of of market value? 
very exactly. awkward to, to follow. The, the lady of uh, Farmers Defense Force in New Zealand, the, the, she explained it the other day. Mm. It's not enough. The reimbursement is not enough. Like the next day, you got to pay tax and everything, and you got you. She reckoned it is not near enough to to carry on. Well, they can't carry on farm, farming, of course. They're not allowed to carry on farming. They they're not allowed to go somewhere else. Mm. So they end up with nothing. They That's can come to is. they can come to New Zealand, but they can't farm in the EU, which is intriguing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's. It's it's interesting to me is that the concern I have is once you're in the pay of the government or the taxpayer, your arguments are a bit hollow. So is it true that in, in Holland there's been a lot of payments to the farmers to stay on their land effectively in smaller units and um have 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 family units? So there's been a lot of taxpayer support, whether it's for environmental reasons or I think more than production reasons. Now they're sort of saying they want your land. I mean, it's very hard to have uh, take a moral high ground if you've already had some taxpayer support. So yeah. how's that playing out? How's that playing out? Well, the thing is, uh, I don't know how long ago it was. Be the man Mansold, he was then the minister of uh, agriculture or whatever it was. In those days, it was all about after the war. It was about food security. Yes. So that's why they stimulated the farmers to produce more. They they made all the farmers, uh, the farms economic units, because a lot of the farms were spread out, a couple of hectares here, a couple of hectares there. So they between the farmers, they swapped all that land. So it all became blocks. So economic units, you didn't have to drive 20 kilometers to your hectare over there and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But what's happened now? They, uh, the 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 same what's happening here the divide between people in the cities but want to go biking uh, on uh, in on the rural the roads yeah they the the divide between the the city people and the rural people is getting so big the the city people don't understand the farmers anymore they want to go biking and uh, they don't want to see a sprayer or anything, all that sort of stuff. So they're making it very, very difficult for the farmers. Mm. But and now the green, the green movement is growing so big in Holland. The green mo movement is the danger. They they want everywhere uh, forest and this and that and and the same again recreation. They don't, mm. they they don't know even know where their food is coming from. Plus. Mm. Hans, do you think that the farmers have been subsidized in Holland for so long that they have slowly been swept along with this without realizing which way they are heading? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that was really, I really think in the beginning it was all about food security. Because mm. after the war, a lot of people died of hunger. Mm. So, but it slowly changed. And and the subsidy, yeah, definitely a lot of subsidy, uh, subsidies even for buying new equipment, all that sort of stuff. You got all sorts of rules for, yeah, and that, uh, they, yeah, that's what's happened. You, you're dependent on the government, and then, um, yeah, in a way, you got nothing to say. So, so yeah. fast forwarding to today, uh, uh, recent days actually, uh, I note that the Netherlands government has dissolved. Yeah. Um, Mark Rutter couldn't get his coalition to uh, stay stay together. What do you think the 
the likelihood is uh, of the BBB, the effectively the I can't explain the name, but the Farmers Party effectively. What do you think the chances they will hold a uh, position in a new parliament with about their twenty percent block? How how do you think that'll play out? Well, the problem with BBB um, is they already recognizing there is a nitrogen problem. So oh. they're not going to be, they, they bought, the farmers bought a cat in the bag, sorry. Well, that, that's just my opinion. Um, I, I followed it quite quite deeply. And I, I know her background, she's, her background is Monsanto or whatever it is, all those big conglomerates. Mm. So <laughs> I don't think, um, so, so you I think- don't think she's going to be the savior of the farmers. Let's say it like that. So, so just getting that a bit more clear in my head, this lady that's running it has got an Irish background, I gather, um, heritage. You think she's been bought off by big, big, uh, well, yeah, well big, I, d- big, I don't um, know if she's bought off. She could be, um, what is the word for it? Um, not real opposition, let's say it like that. She, she's definitely um, a likable lady in the, in the parliament. Too. She's, she's making the right noises, but she doesn't go far enough. We've got she, you like that here, Don, haven't we? Making the right noises, but that's all they are, just noises. Nothing yeah. substantial. Yeah. You, well, you do, you, you do get sick of people that speak out of both sides of their mouths. Um, but, yeah, so yeah. this is something we will have to work or watch with interest because I think it's a critical juncture um, in those of us that are into free enterprise and lack of less protection and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. We we see the writing on the wall uh, from places that fall into line with this globalist push. Right. And I, I, you, you've put the cat amongst the pigeons, Hans, because I had thought this lady and her top tier were seriously in opposition to, to that type of agenda. No, I, I, the only thing I'm hoping, because she started all on her, on her own, mm. And she got a lot of people behind her now. And one of my uh, cousins is actually, I think he's in in the in the parliament now, not in the not in the second house, in the first one. And I told him too. I said the only way it can work is if you put the pressure on her with all your people that believed in her, and mm. and put her on the right track because she will just stay in that little square what's been mapped out. She won't go out. She believes in the nitrogen uh, problem already. Well, it is proven by experts. The formula they use is fraudulent. It is all proven. She will. She says there is a nitrogen problem. So she she is not gonna. She is not gonna solve the problem for the farmers. Then that is the problem, isn't it? When we start arguing just within the allowed narrative, that all right, and it start giving up solutions to imaginary problems we we are stuck there yeah. but i i wonder hans you you are a migrant here i am a migrant i'm a kiwi now as i'm guessing most likely you are what no, about no, the, uh, you're, still not, that. you're still that <laughs> all right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so what about the cultural and the social uh, changes that are happening with the government that's folded over the weekend there is a whole talk about migration being uh, you know a major trigger yeah, yeah. there so what what is happening well, he, he's uh, well. He's actually uh, resigned completely now. He's gone. Mm. Rudd is mm. gone. Mm. But he all of a sudden he um, he got a lot of pressure of his 
um, members mm. to get tougher on immigration. Yep. Because like Holland is only as big as Otago. And we yep. got 18 million people there. Yeah. So so <laughs> Holland is like it's it's stuck. They they can't move like the and yeah, and they keep bringing them in two hundred thousand every year. They keep bringing in more migrants, don't they? Yeah. So so eventually um, it's going to be full, unless hmm. you take them uh, ten or high. But <laughs> yes. so so but the, the the things I've heard is um, because I just listened to a program in Holland. The, the things he want to change. He's sounding really tough, but not much is going to change. The, the problem is the European Union, and that's what it is. Holland is already, in my eyes, stopped to uh, exist as, as Holland. Like the 60% of, of the new laws in Holland are made by the European Union by people who nobody voted for. Mm. Like, and that's the, that's the real problem. And they, they, cannot, they can only get out if, they, if the European Union will fall to bits. Mm. And Holland so, is one of the front runners, of course. So, so I can't well, see why. Well, isn't Holland the second um, biggest exporter of food products in the world behind the United yeah. States? So, yeah, yeah, they're they're in a yeah. You can see the game that's being played. Oh well, we can we can diminish our food production. Something else will take its place. Um, yeah. I don't I don't don't quite see how that works. Um, but yeah, we we will watch this space with interest. Tell me, um, what do you make of the Little lady, young young lady Eva Vladenbrook. Is she on the money when she puts her her blogs out and her, her videos out? Oh, I think she's very much on the money, but uh, the same with yeah. Okay, you say with the. Uh, I think she's definitely on the money. Hmm. But if you get a bit older, you, yeah, I don't know if it is mellowing, but you 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 start seeing things a little bit more from both sides. She's definitely on our side, like. Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and what she says too, I think it's all factual. Uh, um, um, right. So, what what would like to get from you in the next week or two is some names from the Netherlands, if you can put us into some of your connections over there, because we'd love to have an interview with a few people on the ground. Uh, not saying that you're not on the ground; you're, you're deeply <laughs> rooted rooted in the earth, um, but. But it would be great to have some further connections and build a global sort of um, idea yeah, yeah. of, of yeah. what's happening in the farming um, world for our listeners because it's very easy for, for us to wrap it on about what's happening in New Zealand. But, you know, this 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 stuff is bigger than us. Yeah, oh, yeah. And and we I need just, to have some international linkage, linkages. I was just going to mention something else. When I listened to the, the Lady of Farmers Defence Force, that's how bad it is getting. Like she said, every 12 days, a farmer in Holland is committing suicide. Okay. I think even for, I think that's absolutely terrible, but that's that's from her mouth. So that's every 12 days, another farmer is committing suicide. They just don't know, they can't see an end of it. Yeah, I, I, not, I'm not sure the current stats in New Zealand, but they won't be great either. Um, no. This this anxiety that's being caused by the massive regulatory push um, oh, yeah. coming over you, you're made to look second rate or to to everybody else, and it's just I call it um, abuse. Uh, other people sort of may have a different term of it, but oh, 
couldn't agree more. It is galling. The same people that are causing mental health issues, not just to the rural sector, even to the urban now, are the ones that then come with band-aids about mental health support and rural trust and all of right. it. Well, if you were just just step out of our lives and let us do what we do, you know, we probably wouldn't even need you. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 Hans. Um, I will work on that. I will work on that. Thank you. And so, uh, you've you've got how many children left at home these days? Are you got? Um, well, they come and go a little bit because all my uh, children sort of have, have bought a little bit of block of land, and they got right. to build a house, and then they live here for a while, and then they go again. <laughs> So at the moment there is nobody at home. <laughs> okay. I I reckon you're the ideal dad. It'd be good to have all dads to be like that. So um I don't know, listeners that we're, we're we're watching a um we do this via Zoom and um we we have um the 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 visual of of Hans and, and I've got Jaspreet as well on the other side, and you see a smiley, happy man. Um so you know, happy go lucky and um I would, I would like to think all New Zealand farmers could be happy-go-lucky people and we could, you know, just get a few of those things off our back that are constantly niggling us. But, hey, Hans, uh, I reckon it's been um, good to have you um, on our sort of uh, real New Zealander part of our show. Um, yeah. I think we're, we're going to try and make a regular effort to get the people off the land on our show. So you're just – I think you're about number three now, so – Thank you for coming on, and um, uh, we hope to get you back someday. Sounds good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank All you right. so much, Hans. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jasprit Bopara, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And if there is anything you've heard in recent times, it would be the call from Groundswell New Zealand, an advocacy group for farmers that has called upon its supporters to boycott countdown supermarkets for a period of two weeks, beginning from July 24th, this Monday gone, till Sunday, the 7th of August. And here with us right now is the man of the moment, Bryce McKenzie, co-founder of Groundswell. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you very much, Jasper. So this is unprecedented. I've been here a while and I have never heard a call to boycott supermarkets before. What brought this on, Bryce? Uh, I guess just the farmer bashing in the finish, Jasper. We, uh... Uh, it was quite noticeable by our committee how they were starting to get feeling like they had been bashed over the head too many times. There's been so much going on. The winter grazing hasn't helped, but just generally everybody seems to be attacking the farmers. And I guess you could say that this is just something that uh, most of the committee felt was they had had enough. And quite often we can uh, complain about things and, and argue about things and actually don't take any action. But people actually feel better when you do take action. So we decided that we were going to take action. And uh, because Countdown had basically said that we were going to have to get our emissions under control and um, 
that uh, we were causing them most of their problem for their emissions. And then they come out and told us what science they were using, which is the wrong science anyway. It just added another straw to our backs. Uh, that's the reason for calling the uh, the boycott of countdown. So, yeah. And so far, so good. So, so what? Yes, yeah, so far, so good. So, what's the uh, feedback? Have you had any interaction with Countdown themselves? I mean, I imagine they're feeling a bit precious about it. Well, yes, they are, Don. And I mean, we didn't actually expect to have any any correspondence with them, but yes, they emailed us this morning, so they're pretty quick off the mark. And uh, a lot of platitudes and excuses would be the best you could say. Uh, they tried to tell us how much food they give away. They didn't really address their emissions too much. Uh, they did talk a little bit about scope one and two and scope three emissions, but um, mostly it was platitudes to try and uh, make us realise that uh, what we were doing was probably wasn't in line with where their thinking was. So, yeah, they, at least they reached out to us anyway. Well, they, they say in their press release they want to, or they're committed to reduce supplier emissions by 19% uh, by 2030. And today, in that same press release of last Friday, they're saying uh, emissions made up 98% of their uh, supplier, uh, supplier emissions made up 90% of their carbon footprint. I mean, it beggars belief um, how they could uh, attribute so much to inside effectively the farm gate. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that really upset us. And, of course, they're using the wrong metrics to do that. But even if you take that into consideration, it's still a massive part of their emissions profile. They're blaming the suppliers. So uh, I guess that means if they're going to take that seriously and they want to cut their emissions by so much, you know who they're going to be looking at to make that big change, don't you? It's, it's going to be us, the suppliers. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I sense uh, the arguments coming with um, your own companies, Fonterra. I mean, I gather the same uh, same arguments going to be have to be had with them because they're trying to attribute a large chunk of the emissions inside the farm gate as well. But anyway, who who benefits from all this, um, Bryce? Is there any any transparency about where the benefit sits? No, there's definitely not, Don. And I mean, we've talked about this at great length, especially, um, and I don't know if we want to go down the Ewok Ekanoa track, but uh, hopefully it's dead and buried. But, you know, when we, when farmers or uh, business people have a good year by the sweat of their brow and because pricing's favourable, they pay tax on that, and that's fine. And when you have a bad year, of course, you you're probably paying tax from the year before, so it makes it a lot harder. But the whole thing is that it's all based on income. And, and you could say it's not fair, and a lot of times it's probably not. But then when you get a tax put on top of that that's not based on income, it's based on an ideology of uh, emissions, it doesn't matter what state your income's in, you're expected to pay that tax on top of it. And that's mostly what we're finding with all these things. That, that that's exactly what it is. It's a tax on top of what you would normally pay. A, a worker in, in a supermarket or anywhere, they get taxed on their income, and so does a farmer. But this isn't like that. This is totally different. This is an ideology tax. And to add itself to injury, they've got uh, a you know a store rebranding of four hundred million declared in the same week. How's <laughs> all of those signages going to landfill? Going to you know contribute to warming or not? 
<laughs> that's it, Jasper. They've got to, you know, one guy, and I actually know him, but he's at Timaru, and they've just put a new count down at Timaru. And he said, so what? Now they're going to, they've just, it's just open, not long. And now they're going to tear down all the signage and everything, and I guess they repaint and everything. So there's all that cost and all that uh, energy going into that. Uh, are they taking that into consideration? I mean, it's just, just ludicrous. And you were talking about uh, Don Fontera and questioning what's happening there. I remember, Bryce, it was about two winters ago, Groundswell had called a meeting at the Croydon Lodge, and I stood up there and asked this question of Jamie McFadden. I said, why are we focusing so much on the government? It's our own uh, co-ops pushing this on us. And Jamie said, he says, that's odd. He says, the moment you ask this question, the room around me nodded. And he had, you know, he asked the audience a question that, do you agree with what this young lady says? And he goes, yep, I, I seem a lot of nodding. And that's what's happening. These are our co-ops, be it in farming or, I mean, Countdown is not our co-op. But it seems that these corporates are even more anxious to jump the gun than the government actually is. Yes. Yeah, look, we have people with inside our organisation that can tell us quite a bit about that now. And I know just last week um, that um, Fonterra have come out, and I don't know, you may have seen it, where they've just come out and they're renewing all the boilers and putting in um, electric boilers. And they were mm. talking about, you know, how they're going to cut their um, uh, scope three emissions from their suppliers, but they wouldn't enter into how much or anything. So, but they're, they're saying, well, our class one and two or our scope one and two, we're getting on top of that. But then we've got to turn our attention to scope three. And that's the same thing. That's coming back to the food producers again. But you're right. I do remember Jamie talking about that. So it's not just the dairy industry either. We've got that in, the, in our... Uh, 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 from our silver fern farms and alliance. I won't say they are specifically the ones, but there's, some of them are part of it too, that, yes. So, so Bryce, put yourself in the hand uh, in, yeah, in the shoes of the sustainability officer at Countdown. <laughs> She's charged by her, um, her shareholders uh, and her, um, her board and, her, well, her CEO, to be fair, to, um, to apply the rules. Um, We've got to find a circuit breaker as producers. What do you think the circuit breaker is? Because this stuff is endemic. It's like the virus of the um, food producers. Uh, they just keep coming at us. And uh, it's not clear to me what gain there is for anyone uh, attacking farmers. But so yeah. what's the circuit breaker in your mind? Uh, look, I, I can only say how I, I operate and, I mean, there's a big picture out there, and it's not a very nice picture. And if you look at the big picture, you can get paralysed and actually do nothing. So mm. I try and take break it down. I say, well, you know, I can deal directly with those people, and I can I can probably make headway there. I can alert other people to that problem. So therefore, I'll put my energy into that. And I found for a start, it was taking little steps. And as I keep saying to people. The more people that hear what you're saying, the more people that want to be part of it, the bigger bigger things you can take on. So it's a matter of keeping up enough people and getting enough momentum that you can really push back. And I guess that's the way I deal with it. I don't actually see how we can actually stop it all. I honestly don't. I can see how we can slowly start pushing back, but I can see people stopping it. 
and that's all that will stop it as a as a big movement of people. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, at the moment it's about reporting. What cost do you think the consumer would have to bear at the moment from this? Because actually, there's no cost to the consumer. It's all on the farmer right now. Um, when will that trickle down to the consumer? Well, it's yeah, that's a really good question, Don, and that's got to happen. And I mean, our consumers need to actually be very, very aware that this is coming at you and it's getting more rapid all the time because there's more and more costs going on uh, food producers. So, yeah, that's a really good one, Don. That, that's coming soon. It's got to come soon because otherwise there'll be no food produced because farmers will go out of business. So, so it's interesting, Bryce. Just before we came on to this interview, I decided to uh, check out who uh, does the Fonte- uh, Sorry, the countdown um, compliance. Who does the regime reporting for them? And there's an outfit in Australia called ANZ, I think Step ANZ. And you just have to go down their wiring diagrams, and you find the perpetrators of all this. And it's it's the we can't talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about the deep uh, United Nations spider web or the WEF spider web, but it's all there. It's all there. Now, you probably don't want to talk about this, Bryce, but um, I do. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to have that conversation very soon because, interestingly, there is not one New Zealand politician who will talk about it. And yet Australian politicians, are plenty. there's plenty of them uh, talking about those those tentacles. So when I realised that the auditor or the compliance regime for Countdown was this group, um, Think Step ANZ, it just um, puts it all together for me. What do you say, yeah. Jaspreet? Oh, completely. I, I looked at the website the moment you told me, Don, and it says, Think Step ANZ is a signatory to the UN Global Camp Compact and the Climate Leaders Coalition. End of story. That, that pretty much spells it out. I've seen this identical thing going on for decades now at this point and uh, it's it's easy to just you know push it away but ultimately uh, Bryce as we saw when Tom Sheehan came it almost seems to me that we are now trying to push solutions to non-existent problems if we actually want to talk about the science here. Yes yeah yeah, I I agree I mean there's so much science there that we're not using and I agree with you Don we all know that there's far more powerful forces behind what's happening than most people can see. And I I know for me, um, I can see what's going. I don't push it too much because I I deal with a lot of people who aren't ready to go there yet. Um, I know through our social media, it gives the opportunity. We don't take anybody off that's talking about that. So even though it may not look that look like we're addressing the issue, we certainly are letting other people address that issue through our organisation. No, oh, yep. fantastic. That's fantastic, Bryce. I mean, I I didn't want to put you on the spot, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm certainly after 25 years or even 30 years of observing stuff, I I can't hold back any longer, and so hence why I have the opinions I have. And um, I share them with politicians in New Zealand and no one is willing to listen. So we've got a big job to do. Um, we, you know, Jasper and I, and I know Groundswell is doing the same, but we're talking um, globally now because we're we're realising just talking locally isn't doing it. Yeah. Mm. So, so how do you see it working then, Don? I mean, where, where do you actually get enough momentum to deal with this head on and push back? That, uh, to me, that that's the key to the whole thing. 
well, it's really hard when the minority is, uh, you know, farmers worldwide are now in a major minority. You know, sorry, it's a, it's a contradiction. We're in a minority. Um, yeah. And it's very hard when you've got the tyranny of the majority forcing uh, their, or exerting their powers over the top of us all the time. Um, and especially, I mean, why is it, do you think, sorry, I'm going to put it back on you, Bryce. Why, um, why, why do you think, not one of our 120 politicians is willing to even entertain a discussion when, in fact, it's clear that they are not in control. I guess because if they do address it, then they're going to have to justify it with everybody else, <laughs> and maybe they're not ready to do that, Don. <laughs> uh, I couldn't resist that. Uh, good, good answer. Yeah, good but, answer. you know, it's just sort of, pretend it doesn't exist and let it go away. But Don and I have spoken with politicians across the Tasman. There's Aussie politicians, quite a few of them talking. We spoke to a Dutch politician recently, and it is like the same story all over again. But, you know, before uh, before you go, Bryce, what has the response been to this call out from Groundswell? Oh, we've been absolutely blown away by it. Um, I'd have to say that we didn't expect to get such a response from Australian people who are going to boycott um, Countdown in Australia. That really surprised us. Some of the emails and uh, uh, messages and even phone calls that we've had, I've had a number of phone calls from people, has been just so overwhelming. Now, look, this is something we run into all the time, and you perhaps probably do too. I had a room tonight from a guy who's in the um, uh, fruit-growing business and he's been well up in the food growing business um and he rang me tonight he was in auckland and he's been waylaid with a number of things got mixed up with shooting in auckland this morning so he wasn't sort of watching what was going on but he said oh i was sitting in the airport and i come across groundswell's page he said and it made me jump out of my seat because he said you're taking on something that we would love to do but we can't because he said and we get this from the Pukegari uh, vegetable growers too. They keep urging us on because they get singled out. The minute they try and stand up, they get boycotted. I mean, these supermarkets just bring the stuff in from overseas. So, And the same with the fruit. So they're all scared of taking the big supermarkets on. Yeah, and, and and of course, on top of that, uh, suppliers are scared of being boycotted by their banks. Now, you know, their finances, there's a whole lot of... Uh, cards and play and um yeah as i said before we've got to find a circuit breaker and and what i'd say is all power to groundswell's arm because you are leading the way you're doing the stuff that um you know advocacy groups should do and uh and um look we'll be watching with interest uh in the days and weeks ahead i know this is a two-week um two-week uh process but uh getting the australian mates on side fantastic fantastic yeah so, yeah. so thanks, Bryce. I mean, we'll we'll be in touch with you in a few weeks, no doubt, and see how you're looking. He's looking very young tonight, very fresh, <laughs> listeners. Um, I'm not sure he'll be that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, I'll tell you now that uh, taking action actually does do something for you. It really does. I mean, uh, to sit back and complain and do nothing is not good enough. We're, we're getting, we've got to take action, and we've got to continue to take action because the people that are pushing against us they're not resting on it they're mm. they're keeping at it so we have to do the same and it is good for you it is really good for you to do it 
Now it's invigorating. I can see it's invigorating. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, Bryce. And, um, yeah, we will check back in. Thank you so much, Bryce. And, yeah, absolutely echo your sentiment. It is really good to be doing something. And we'll let you get back to your footy now. (laughs) Thank you, Jasper and Don. And you ones keep up your great work too. Cheers, guys. See ya. Okay, good night. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Bryce McKenzie. Don and I interviewed him a couple of uh, evenings before and kept him away from his footy and he was very gracious to give us some time. But uh, isn't it interesting that we now have a major farming advocacy, grassroots advocacy body calling for a virtual boycott of Countdown for the next couple of weeks. Now, to be honest, this is not hard for me. I barely go into Countdown, especially since, uh, you know, ever since the lockdowns and all. So I, I was never a big supermarket shopper in any way. I prefer smaller chain stores going to individual butcheries and so on. But uh, during the lockdowns where everything was that much harder and these mass Nazis everywhere and all, I slowly found some, you know, alternatives and I actually shop quite local now. But uh, regardless of what Countdown says, I today went online to their website and started looking at the product offering, Don. Quite a bit of what you would think is made in New Zealand is actually not. Yeah, and and that's why it's called a supermarket. Um, I would suggest that it's fair that there's a very wide range of products in there mm-hmm. compared to the days of old. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually, I love going to supermarkets, to be honest, Jaspreet. Um, <laughs> though I'm not a great shopper, as my wife says, I always find the sweet stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I'm intrigued by it all and the, the range of goods and services that they they, what goods that they provide is is far greater than it's ever been. Uh, it, I think that the deal is uh, for Groundswell, they're just a bit sick of being the scapegoat for yet another sort of round of compliance ahead. I mean, it's not it's not hitting the road yet, but it's just the thin end of the wedge. They've had enough. Um, and, of course, uh, what are the farmers supplying? Well, dairy products. Um Vegetables, mm. uh, milk, milk uh, meat products. There's mm. a variety of things, and I know consumers just want safe and trusted food. Their emissions profiling uh, is not relevant to them. And affordable. Affordable too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but if, uh, if I look at say something like, and I know you know you like supermarkets, I don't. We we leave that besides the point. Mm-hmm. If I looked at the countdown frozen chopped spinach. Packed in Belgium from local and imported spinach. Mm. I look at their, what else? Essential fries, crinkle chips. Packed in Belgium with ingredients Mm. from multiple origins. Mm. Prep set go, pumpkin chunks, product of Spain. Cauliflower florets frozen, packed in Belgium. Berries from Chile. There has to be some emissions uh, when all of these make their way to a, our tiny island at the bottom of the Pacific. Oh, those food mi- those food miles are being talked about again. Um, you know, again, uh, the the price, the retail price, 
Uh, if it's desired by the consumers, they'll buy it. If it's too expensive, they won't. Um, the range of products that come from around the world is um, part of the open borders, I suppose, for, for trade. Mm. Uh, you know, we used to be, in, when I was a kid, it was you had in-season stuff, that was it. You know, in the winter, you had your your, par, your parsnips and your broccoli, um, Brussels sprouts and stuff like that. You certainly didn't have lettuces and strawberries as we get now. So uh, consumers, they can vote with their feet or they can... Um, or they can uh, pay the price effectively. So we want but that rate. Farmers, do uh, they can they vote with their feet here? Uh, they uh, are well, stuck between a rock and a hard place. 100%. There is a are. monopoly here or a duopoly, which way you choose to look at it. Yeah. And uh, someone tell me, we've got, we grow enough pumpkins in this country, I'd say at least enough to feed 5 million people. Oh, yeah. Why would Countdown be getting these prep set girl pumpkin chunks from uh, Spain? No logic to that at all, but um, in, in our sense, but clearly there's... A, Why would um, you even be having these in chunks? All right, is it convenience? Well, it, if it is not for convenience, then why don't you just sell whole pumpkins? No plastic, none involved, grown locally, because they keep talking about, you know, local supply mm -hmm. chains and closed loop and all of this. This For me, this flies in the face of all of that, don't? Uh, well, absolutely, it does. But consumers have said they want the stuff. So uh, the thing that gets me about all of this is we do have it locally. Um, we don't want protectionism from um, from imports that at least don't make our standards. Mm. Uh, so if they do make our standards, um, we've said it's okay to have them here. Uh, in the end, uh, as I say, I think the consumers have to make a choice. I mean, we often hear from the pork industry, um, imported um, pig products coming in um, mm. and how the country of origin labeling is not clearly uh, identified or well enough identified. Well, you know, New Zealanders want New Zealand pork. They're going to have to pay for it because mm. it, it is probably got a higher cost of production than overseas pork, even allowing for, for food miles, uh, you know, travel miles. I am so, now going to draw a long bow here. Uh, <laughs> you sound very done. But when they say that consumers are demanding it, so we are getting them pumpkin chopped yeah. uh, in a pack, packed in Spain, flown all the way over here because consumers demand it. But when the same consumers say, we don't want the Let's Get Wellington moving project, what happens there then? And I said it's a long bow. But how come in some places when it suits the business, why don't they just say, don't they say this is climate change and, you know, yeah. we can't, you can't do this. You have to use New Zealand pumpkin. It probably uh, suits their bottom line. Oh, 100% the bottom line. Um, you know, you look at the balance sheet of the last couple of years, the, the company in question here, and uh, it's pretty good profit line there, I would have thought. Uh, supposedly, um, when things are a bit tough, they haven't actually been doing it that tough themselves. No, and yeah. countdowns because uh, I looked at Woolworths consolidated statement of uh, you know there's consolidated financial statements and they said that uh, the lockdowns helped them because people were mainly eating at home and they had a 10 to 15 percent increase in different quarters. Then with the Omicron wave, they said they had a you know steady raft of staff absences that didn't help. But before we delve further into the financials, I am going to now coin a new term. I've often used the term 
virtue signaling. No more. I'm now going to call it ESG signaling. <laughs> there you have it. Well, it wasn't hard, was it? Um, <laughs> and are we, are we getting anywhere with um, telling people about ESGs? I know at the end of the show, we're going to have a bit of a podcast about a, a sort of another person's view on how do you explain ESGs, but it's not in everyone's language yet, Jasper. ESG, D-I-E, all this SDG. stuff. SDG. Yeah, yes. it's just not in the language yet. Um, and so we, we, you know, we're doing a good job here, and especially down to you uh, for doing it. Uh, it's 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 a big deal, and it's our job to educate people about this supposedly non-binding concept um, uh, around environmental and social. Uh, and governance and it's 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 just a big task um, it's so deeply entrenched into everything these companies are doing and yet they can say that it's non-binding it's just sort of something we report on to the united nations like i read just <laughs> recently the united sorry and i was slightly di diverting uh, or deviating from where we are but new zealand actually does report its compliance with the stgs SDGs to the United Nations annually. And yet we've got 120 politicians in Wellington who deny that the SDGs or any compliance with the United Nations exists. We it's have there. liberals like David Seymour called me out. A simple question. Simple question. David, what do you think about the increasing influence of the United Nations on mm. domestic news and policy? You, madam, he says, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and it's all sad. I'm, I'm saddened, uh, I recall that. Uh, because it just, it's all there. It's all there. Uh, as I said, non-binding, but we've got all the big companies in New Zealand playing the tune to them, to the ESGs, and we are going to have uh, uh, bankability issues like mm. Nigel Farage has had and like mm. some other big players have had if you question this stuff. I mean, I, I've got a, a farmer telling me today that he got a 0.2 of a percent in, uh, interest rate deduction because he ticked all the boxes for his company because he could prove that before his bank because he could prove that he'd been doing all the right environmental stuff on his farm um, and he didn't want to pay a couple of thousand dollars to get his farm assessed. He just told them what he's doing and they sort of accepted. So did he get a deduction of 0.2 of a percent? No, the people that are on the other side of it got to pay mm. two more. Yeah. Um, banks don't give away discounts. Mm. Nah, nah. But yeah, listeners, if there's one thing you need to know, it's, it's these various acronyms. And there's so many of them, but DEI or DIE, as you call it, diversity, equity, and inclusion, SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals, and ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Factors. They're all the same thing. You, they are going to tell you, all right, what sort of food miles, what sort of emission profiles does your product, does their product have? Social factors. So, all right, are you paying homage to certain demographics? Inclusion. What, um, in in fact, like what we discussed last time, that NZ Steel that got $140 million of your taxpayer money as a subsidy for decarbonization two years ago, ticked all the boxes. They are now aiming for a 40-40-20 ratio, 40% male, 40% female, 20% gender diverse. It's coming straight from the World Economic Forum and the UN dictates. And uh, 
Is that why NZ Steel got the money? Got our taxpayer money? Who who's to say? But let's have a look at Countdown. And what do Countdowns or rather its parent company, Woolworths Financial Statements, uh, reveal? And I managed to get a copy of their last year's financial year 2022 highlights. And it's 180 pages. So I understand it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. But they speak of the fact that uh, they hold a gold tier status in the Australian Workplace Equality Index. Australian Workplace Equality Index. Now, who creates these indices? What and they have the 2021 LGBT Inclusion Awards, you know, entries into those. Now, when you are looking at bananas or a roast or a nice piece of steak, is that what you're thinking? I'm going to buy it from a company that takes this, 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 and this, or are you thinking what's the cheapest cut? Or, you know, what can I quickly grab? And in, in my case, often last minute jump and run and, uh, how can I make a hasty exit? Just one thing and out of the supermarket. If I do go at all, usually it is very rare. I might drop by the supermarket once in two months, no more, to pick up one odd thing that my gluten intolerant daughter needs. Other than that, I don't even go. But this is what these corporates seem to think you and I value in our food offerings. So Countdown has a gender equity tick they have the rainbow tick they have certain emissions ticks and all of that and i specifically looked at how much what are they talking in terms of their new zealand business so the first thing they say is that in financial year 2022 countdown introduced joint theory of maori and english language labeling on all new zealand packaged seafood products two as a as a part of their commitment to incorporate Thereo into everyday lives of Kiwis and was driven by team members who wanted to pay respect to Tangaroa and the fishermen who provide the fresh seafood. Seriously? Is that how you give people respect? By changing the labeling? Or would you do that by giving them a fair price for their product? Choosing their product first before any imported Seafood comes into New Zealand. I would have thought the latter, but then what do I know, Don? Uh, we're not allowed to use virtue signaling. ESG signaling. ESG, ESG signaling. It it beggars belief. There's there's a cost to all of that, um, and it may be that it goes through and out the other end um, in a couple of years, but there is a cost, and um, I'm yet to find people that want anything more than, as you say, the right price goods uh, that they can put in their in their shopping trolley. Um, I don't think the credentials you've talked about make one jot of difference to anybody, but clearly someone has decided to tick the boxes. They've got to do this stuff. They've been coerced, and that's the worst thing here, Jasper. Mm. The coercion that's gone on by these um, elements in our society that just want to be so precious and so virtuous about everything, and yet they're far from virtuous. Um, they are yeah. the opposite. Virtuous would be giving your producers, respecting your producers, yes. respecting yes. their product offerings, giving them a fair price for that, 
enough for even the smaller ones to be able to make, you know, a fair, a decent living. That's what yeah. it is. And I another bit of ESG signaling that I saw was on countdowns, both on Woolworths uh, financial statements and on council's website, is they said they have begun a Kite accelerator program. And they go on to say that this program is delivered in partnership with Amutai, New Zealand supplier diversity intermediary, to ensure that the program provides meaningful result for businesses involved. But again, which businesses are we talking about here? Which businesses? Businesses belonging to a specific demographic, mm-hmm. Maori and Pacifica, ESG mm. signaling over here. Mm. So they have decided that, I mean, what is a supplier diversity program uh, intermediary? There are all these new words I am learning at the ripe old age of 44. I, it's hard to explain it, Jaspreet. I um uh yeah, I'm a bit lost here actually. I just I don't get the game. Um so I, beyond so, how we've discussed it. I just don't no, get so it. So this ESG signaling here, so countdown works with this organization called Amotai, mm-hmm. A-M-O-T-A-I. And what does Amotai do? It says its mission is to build sustainable wealth for Maori and Pacifica. How does it do that? To significantly, by significantly increasing contract value revenue for Maori and Pacifica businesses. What we do? We connect Maori and Pacifica owned businesses with buyers wanting to purchase goods, services, and works. Amutai has a national database of business ready Maori and Pacifica businesses and helps them engage with the corporates. There is an outfit doing just that. If this was being done for white businesses, Indian businesses, Asian business, this would be called racist. 100%. And yet now, because it's done, it is ESG signaling. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick of hearing about this separate economy in this country, uh, like we have a Maori economy, uh, perhaps a Maori and Pacifica economy. It just, it is um, odd to hear that. Should is we call it EV economy? Because it's sure the average Maori is not getting much. Their name yeah. is being used, but how much do those benefits percolate down to the bottom? Well, I don't, I don't know, but there's significant business interests um, now with with Maori, but they're they're in a New Zealand economy. That's what it is. We don't call, um, um, I don't call the dairy industry the New Zealand economy. Um, it's and and I mean to say they're part of an economy. Like, uh, it doesn't matter if they've got a company with a with a Maori name or something like that. They're part of the New Zealand economy, as the dairy industry is, as the meat industry is. There's nothing separate about it. But sadly, we've done this ESG um, work on it, and there they go. They've they've got traction. Um, it it's amazing how far in these last few years these things have you know how quickly they've gained momentum especially post-covid there was a time when i struggled to explain to people what sdg is it wasn't in the usual lexicon now at least most hr people or at least the boards all of them know what sdgs are there's 
ESG oh. signaling everywhere. Countdown New Zealand also publishes its own sustainability report. Mm. So sustainability report 2020 is what I got my hands on. Page four. Our commitment to people, planet, prosperity, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And it goes on to expand that our corporate responsibility strategy is aligned to the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. These goals call for global action among governments, business, and communities to end poverty, life of dignity and opportunity for all. And they do this by penalizing their own farmers. Wonderful. It's amazing how these SDGs work. Yep. Uh and and I know that uh, yeah, those documents are they're not that hard to read. No, no, but this, yes, this one is especially interesting. This countdown New Zealand sustainability mm. report. But you do have to wonder the credibility of it at, at all. I mean, I so much of it is so subjective. Yep. Um, but they get away with it. And in fact, you sent me another link, and I don't want to divert you again, but I will for a moment, uh, on the the Susan Edmonds article of October 22, 2017, mm. ticks, stars, marks. Has New Zealand got too many certification programs? Perhaps and, we do. And I think we do. Um, New Zealanders do want safe and trusted food, uh, and they want it at the right price, as you said. But all this all this um, branding for, you know, that, that you, you meet the requirements of, xyz and you get a tick or you get a little stamp um i think we should leave those sorts of things up to the processing and the companies that market the stuff forget about national sort of ticks and boxes like that i don't know and you know so many of our meat products don mm. and i'm I'm going to be really absolutely as on pc as i can get here <laughs> so many of our meat products get imported to the middle east right how much it, do it, they care do they care about it, the yeah, rainbow ticks? Yeah, get ex- exported. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. no, I don't think there's a lot of worry there. I no, don't think I, there's I a don't, lot. I don't think so. And, and family violence and all of this are good things. But if you're thinking that is for your customers, I can assure you a vast majority of customers don't even care. But again, going back to the sustainability report, so this is, they outlined the journey for, for the financial year 2017 to 2020. And financial year, 17, they introduced the family violence policy. They introduced the transgender transitioning policy. So a food business, a transgender transitioning policy. All right. Financial year 2018, achieved wide ribbon accreditation and launched our unconscious bias training. But they put a footnote that uh, in 2020, they apologized that only 87% of the team underwent unconscious bias training. Hopefully by now, countdown, 100% people. Oh. Otherwise, have had their training. Snack. Otherwise, yep, yep. yep. Now, yeah. Otherwise, I'm not buying from you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. until year 2019, they achieved the Rainbow Tick accreditation and launched the New Zealand's first B accessible supermarket. And financial year 20, they launched the Proud Diversity and Inclusion Groups. Bravo. And mm. stopped selling fireworks and permanently reduced the price of period products to address period poverty. Oh. La la la. Yeah. Just what really... we need. Uh, this is all that uh, that goes in my mind when I go and pick up a pack of fire lighters or dishwasher tablets and all of this. 
because these are the very few things that I actually go into a supermarket for. I'm not going there for produce at all. Well, you could be the new big, the, the new way uh, of shopping, Jaspreet, but I think when I look at the, uh, you know, we're lucky uh, we're in a um, rural environment. Uh, we can, we've mm. got space to do a lot more on our own properties and grow our own food, um, but it's not the same for everybody else. And, uh, you know, and yet you do get this resurgence of people trying to be more, more mm. self-reliant in, mm. in the in the urban uh, areas now so um I, we go back to this though the esgs are not necessary they're just another uh concept that isn't necessary for the consumer to have safe trusted affordable food they're just mm. not mm. um and it goes right back to climate and emissions um nonsense and, and as at the pinnacle aside from the diversity and equity and inclusion stuff uh, the environmental stuff, the pinnacle of it is climate change policy, and it just drives us nuts. And hence why Groundswell is saying they've had enough and mm. they're hoping that they get other um, other organisations to support them. Mm. They don't. They, they're saying all this reporting that uh, isn't necessary and, in fact, has got the basis wrong anyway in terms of the inside-the-farm gate emissions for animal products way way overstated compared to mm. the, the true effect of their warming emissions um yeah i think uh, that's sick of it that's sick of it before we move on to alaska for the day there's one thing i'd like to uh, throw out there for anyone who is joining the boycott you might like to have a look at this website called openfoodnetwork.org.nz now i ordered through it we have this uh, co-op here called the longwood loop so there's six seven different shops that are attached. The website opens for orders, I think, each Sunday, and by Wednesday, the order closes. And uh, you might find something, you know, in your neck of the woods in New Zealand because this website, openfoodnetwork.org.nz, uh, covers smalls, producers, and growers across both the islands. So have a look. But uh, I think Don and I will stop for now because I am uh, really excited for you to have a listen to our next guest. This is the Dutch politician, Terry Baudet, whom Don and I caught up at uh, late last week. And I'm not sure how many people are familiar with him, Don, out here. Uh, the media seems to have an embargo on anything huh. with him. Yeah, well, he certainly um, is a, he may be considered a firebrand in his own country, I don't know. But the good thing about him, he was sitting in his car when he did this interview and he was uh, at, a, at his co-op uh, effectively or his business where they distribute food to um, to the locals. So he was doing what you've just talked about, actually, Jaspreet, um, having a sort of a local sort of um, yeah. buyer's market effectively. And, you know, if he's a right of centre guy, hell, he shouldn't be doing that, should he? Hard to believe, but it was, it was stunning to um, have an interview with a guy who's obviously of high intellect, and um, perhaps he brought it down to my level. But it was it was a great interview, and we were grateful for his forty five or so minutes. Um, yeah, hope you enjoy. Yeah, I so said thank you so much for joining Don and me today, and uh, our number is twenty fifty seven. If you'd like to text us or. Email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. And Don and I will be back in a minute with our interview with Terry Bote. Thank you so much for joining us. 
And whatever you do, have a great rest of the week. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR, Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And uh, today, we're very, very honoured to have in our presence a, um, a gentleman who I'd describe as uh, a brave uh, person, someone with a lot of courage in his own country. And I think he's the first politician from a foreign country that we've had on RCR, so uh, a current politician, that is. And so we welcome Dr. Terry uh, Boudet to uh, to RCR Greenwashed. Um, he's sitting in a, um, on a, he's on vacation in a central, perhaps, or central or southern, the Netherlands. Uh, clearly, he's um, an MP, as I've said, he um, represents the Forum for a Democracy um, Party in the Parliament, and goodness knows how that Parliament works. It seems fairly awkward, Terry, but um, I call you uh, bold and edgy and uh, someone who's eloquent and asks all the hard questions and puts yourself out there. We don't have that in New Zealand, so we need to learn more from you. How's it going over there? <laughs> well, thank you, first of all, for having me on your show and uh, uh, for the compliments you just uh, expressed. It's, it's, it's a great pleasure to talk uh, to an audience right now or, and, and with uh, journalists from literally the other side of the world. It's, it's so beautiful that in this, this age that we're living in, which in, in many respects is darker and bleaker than than the many of the the times that uh, have have passed before us we are reaching out to one another and we are building this uh, one could say global anti-globalist alliance <laughs> the way i like to call it so it's a pleasure and um yes I, i'm in i'm an mp i'm a member of parliament in the netherlands i'm the founder of a political party there I'm also the author of a number of books, and one book is actually coming out this summer in English. It's called The COVID Conspiracy. It's about all the completely indefensible and harmful policies that were implemented during the COVID period. Um, it was a number one bestseller in the Netherlands, and I'm really hoping to reach an international audience with this uh, volume that's now appearing. So. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the Netherlands that has similarities with the things going on in New Zealand. I really think that there is a global agenda being pushed on us. It it relates to LGBTQI+. It relates to the climate change, environmentalism. It related, obviously, during COVID, was very obvious, uh, but also uh, many other subjects like the mass immigration that is destabilizing our societies. Uh, the limitations on free speech. I mean, we, we are passing hate speech laws here in the Netherlands uh, every two months or so. It's really very scary how the free society is slipping away under our under our very eyes. So um, let's get together and, uh, and try to do something about it uh, with all the people of goodwill across the world. Absolutely agree. Couldn't agree more, actually, Terry. But tell us, from launching the Forum for Democracy as a think tank in 2015 to now being in Parliament, what what got you down this path, and how are you finding it so far? 
Yeah, so I um, I, I set up a think tank in, in 2015, 2014, actually, that mm-hmm. was aimed at, at pushing for an exit referendum. It was after the Brexit referendum was announced in Britain, and uh, it, it became a very successful think tank. We wanted sovereignty back to the Netherlands, uh, and um, so successful, actually, that at some point we were one of the organizers of a referendum on Ukraine. And mm-hmm. two-thirds of the Dutch population in 2016 said, no, we don't want a war with Russia. We do not want Ukraine in NATO and all these things, which obviously then was pushed through anyway. And we see the result now. We, we are in a war, which is a terrible war with only losers. But um, uh, this happened in 2016. And I, I, I really felt that after winning a referendum on such a super important and a huge geostrategic subject, uh, if the government ignores it, the result of it, the outcome, which the government did, then you either have to leave the country or leave politics altogether, or you have to step in and cross the Rubicon, as it were, and um, and go for it. And that's what I did. So in 2017, I participated in the national elections. I won a couple of seats, and then the party grew steadily. And currently, we are the largest political party in the Netherlands in terms of members. So we have the largest membership. And that's something I'm particularly proud of because it, it suggests that we're really a bottom-up movement. And that's the thing we need the most right now. Mm-hmm. And and so going going right back um, to sovereignty and um, and protection of your borders, because I go back to uh, what, what woke me up. There was a program uh, on our news, uh, on CNN news from America, on Sky News in New Zealand, and it talked about this world without borders. And this was probably about 2008. And I thought, oh, that's a nice strap line. That all sounds really good. Nothing to sort of bother me here. And then I realized that that was an agenda in itself. Um, to have a world without borders was the globalist ideal. And I I sort of had a wake-up call. Now, so, so really, uh, the question is, what does nationalism really mean for you, Terry? What does it really mean? Yes, yes, I think that's a very uh, important question. Um, nationalism is the opposite of globalism, and it is the uh, expression of a community to self-govern, to live by their own rules, their own standards, to to make decisions on their own, to be able to repeal or change decisions, to to have uh, a public debate that actually leads to something that may lead to a decision that may lead to changes in policies. Uh, So a nation or a nation state uh, is a a self-governing unit. And that is, I think, an expression of freedom. So globalism is irreconcilable with freedom. It's impossible to have both a global bureaucracy and freedom. Uh, it's 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 either or. It's it's this or that. And I'm I'm very much on the side of freedom. But most uh, most institutions, most most large institutions, most multinational corporations, the the, um, the the supranational organizations, the big banks, the, the the global think tanks, they all they're all aligned towards this this globalist 
dystopia, this globalist ideal that um, that is coming to us in, in, at a very high pace, very rapid pace. Now, last week, Terry, we heard news coming out from the Netherlands about your prime minister resigning over as you know the yeah. migration, or was it the asylum issue? Are you able to expand more on that? What happened? Well, uh, it, it's not very clear what happened. I mean, formally, the Dutch prime minister stepped down because he um, he felt the current um, uh, policies regarding the relatives of, like the family members of those that have been admitted into the Netherlands by their children, are uh, contradictory to his political views. So he he ostensibly has a more strict idea of what immigration we should have. But during his 12-year period as a prime minister, he allowed. Three million, three million people to enter the country. Three million, and and so on. A, the Netherlands is a country with a total population of seventeen million. So that's that's a, it's an enormous number. It's huge. So it's very very um, unlikely that that this immigration, this little immigration thing, which is ultimately about like five or or maybe ten thousand people that we're we're talking about that that was so important for him to drop the government. So it's it's a bit unclear, maybe um, there were some personal uh, vendettas, there were some personal conflicts, nobody really knows. But it's it's obvious that the story, that as it's being uh, presented in the press, is just, it's not, it's not very credible. And besides, I think it's very important to make the point here that it doesn't matter who is in power formally in our countries that's a very sad thing but it's it's true because these these people are merely uh, actors in a script that's being written elsewhere so that this is very this has been very clear from the policies that we saw in the united states whether it was obama or it was bush or in britain whether it's tony blair or this guy or that guy boris johnson in france it, it doesn't matter who is in power because it's the deep state it's the bureaucracy behind it it's the big corporations it's the supranational institutions they make the policies that then the politicians posing as decision makers implement so it, it it's it doesn't matter that the government fell. It doesn't. It doesn't matter that we're going to get new elections. Like only if you get a landslide victory for opposition parties like mine, uh, then you are going to see some differences. Obviously, but the, these mainstream parties they form a cartel. They have essentially the same views. They may pose as you know having severe differences of opinion about immigration, like we had in the Netherlands. But it's all fakery. It's all, it's just uh, make believe to give the impression of a vivid democratic debate. You know, it's all very ridiculous. So in New Zealand, we have a um, mixed member proportional representation model, which uh, I think is, looks on the face of it similar to yours, to be honest. It's very hard to tell what yours is from this side of the world. But um, we've got a majority government at the moment for the first time in our MMP history, and it's not pleasant. Uh, all manner of things are going crazy here. So, um, yeah, something that's not really that that obvious and clear what, what it all looks like is probably the best handbrake you can have at the moment. Secondly, 
would you say that uh, you have similarities to the Nigel Farage uh, type person? I mean, he was pro-Brexit, uh, of course. Uh, would you have a similar philosophy to Nigel? Yes, um, I, I'm an admirer of Nigel Farage, and I, I'm very flattered if I'm compared to him or, or likened to him. Uh, I do feel that um, uh, there are, uh, in almost every Western country, movements like mine, like ours. Uh, so there's in, in Britain, uh, there's Nigel Farage. In Germany, there's the Alternative für Deutschland. Uh, we have uh, parties such as uh, uh, the, the Trump movement, the MAGA movement in, in, in most Western countries. Uh, but the thing that we have not quite established is a, a, a common platform. And the reason is, and this comes to your, um, to your first question about the coalition governments and how the democracy works, the reason that we are, we've been unsuccessful in building a platform together is that we are being played out against each other by these typical swear words that they use against us, these smearing campaigns where they, they take one of us aside and they bully us with words like racist, like fascist, like all that thing, and hate speech and, and all that. And then the others have been uh, frightened into distancing themselves from others and so we've been played out against each other and this is definitely what has happened to nigel farage and we just got the news today that he lost his bank account his mm. bank account was taken from him and the reasons were purely political the internal memo that that was the motivation for the bank to to take his bank account from him that that internal memo has been made public and it's absolutely shocking. This is more or less or whatever worse than cancel culture. This is this is actually destruction culture. This is just you make it impossible for someone to participate in the economic and social life. And and if if we don't get this sense of solidarity right, if 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 we, we don't realize that you know if if they take can take one from us, then they take can take us all. You know, there's no fundamental difference between me. Or, or you, or, or Farage, or anyone else. So this is the thing that I think the left and the establishment have always understood. They they had each other's back. And this, this is what the anti-globalist alliance that we're trying to build, we've got to start getting each other's back. we got to start supporting each other and not trying to get a, a white foot or a quick tap on the back from the well, system by distancing ourselves from each other. Well, I noticed a quote of yours that I've um, I've picked up. Uh, we have been called to the front because we have to, because our country needs us. And I really liked that quote. Um, mind you, I liked Donald Trump's quote when he said he was going to drain the swamp, uh, but he sort of found it yeah. impossible. And then I found another quote of yours in an interview you did. You said, the deep state is greater than the figurehead leaders and real power does not bow to elections. That's, yes. That's absolutely where we are, but uh, is there any way you can expand on that and what the remedy can be, apart from the yeah, alliance? Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm very happy that you brought forward these quotes uh, of mine because I think they're, they're exactly how I view the world and, and how I 
got to view the world through COVID because COVID really woke me up to the to the reality of of the deep state of this bureaucratic uh, network that is pushing a certain agenda, an agenda of control, of centralization of power, of totalitarian uh, measures. Um, and uh, COVID showed this to me because it 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 was obvious that firstly uh, there is not a functioning public debate where arguments decide policies because it was it was from this is um indisputable uh, evidence in the netherlands was it was was brought brought forward there was a report by the government itself that lockdowns would cost significantly more qualitative life years than that they would save save this was uh, indisputable from april may 2020 onwards there was no serious doubt about it there was no doubt about the mortality of covid it was obvious that it had the same mortality as the flu or, or almost the same like roughly the same uh, you know all these all these examples there's so many of these examples of irrationality of policy the journalists didn't say anything the um the, the academic world didn't do anything there it was just a, a complete a failure of the societal structure to bring forward arguments. And the, and the second shocking thing about it was that every Western nation implemented the same, same. irrational policies. On, on literally the same day, March 16, 2020, lockdowns were implemented across Europe. This was a coordinated thing. It was not a national consideration. So we had all these debates in parliaments Every week we were just debating COVID policies, but parliaments didn't actually decide policies. And so this this it's irrational. It's not it's not a rational thing. It's an irrational development that the deep state desires, and it's an international thing. And these two things are, are to me uh, are only confirmed with the things that we've seen afterwards: the pushing of the LGBT agenda. I mean, what what sane person, what serious normal person would believe that eight-year-old kids should experiment with their gender? I mean, that's I think that's just it's it's uh, everyone who I I just got a boy. I've I've uh, I've one child, and it's completely obvious to me that this is not on his mind. He is not. He's not thinking about uh, mm. doing a, a gender change operation. This is just this is implemented by a system globally that has a, a, a fundamentally different view of what mankind should become—a transhumanist, if you will, agenda. And and so this is the, this is a really really important thing to realize because people continue to understand politics through these national elections and through these these debates that you see and and they and they keep when you fail when you're when, when your uh, proposed changes or uh, fail they put the blame on you so they 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 come to me and say look you have great points but if only your tone would be a little bit different or if only you would express yourself slightly whatever to to the right to the left or nuanced or this kind of thing then i'm sure you 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 would 
have success because it's it's obvious that you're right. You have great points, and and this is a, a way to mislead the public. Mm. There are this, everything you see in Parliament is fake. They are actors who don't even need a script to play the role that, that's been assigned to them. But it's excruciatingly hard to get the general audience to understand this. People are have such a deep, innate trust in the democratic process, in, in public debates, and they also think of themselves as rational beings. They, they, they really, that's a fundamental belief that people have, that they themselves are rational. Whereas we know from so much of mass psychology and crowd control and all these things that people people have a tendency to behave irrationally, especially in large groups. Mm, mm. I, I have an eight-year-old Terrier and I can tell you, I decide their bedtime. So choosing their own gender is way, way beyond their remit right now. But yes. uh, I, I couldn't help but notice just a moment behind you. There was, you're sitting in your car right now. And that brought to my mind emissions. We have this place right now, New Zealand, completely, there seems to be a one-point agenda, emissions, bike lanes, and so on. And here I see a Dutchman, not on his bike, but in his car right now. So, so yeah. tell me, has, how bad, because COVID sort of seems to be behind us, how bad is the climate madness there right now? Last year? Oh, or sometime, it's huge. We had a lot of news coming out from Holland about the farmers protest and everything. But it's sort of quietened yeah. now. Yes. Well, uh, this is this is in in itself an, an interesting observation, isn't it? How all these these stories they rise and they're everywhere, and then all of a sudden they disappear. disappear. Rather yeah. like uh, Putin being the one who has cured COVID, because the the day he invaded Ukraine, you know, COVID was over. And and this is this in itself is important, I think, to realize that we are being manipulated right. into right. agony to, to be agonizing about x or y or z whichever subject is the subject of the moment and then you know for three months or four months or a year everybody's talking about it and then something else comes up and and this is uh so so this is just a, a side note but it's an important thing i think to realize but yeah so the farmers they were big a year ago internationally and now everybody's sort of quieted down they've They've done all their typical things. They've put a little bit more money into a government fund that supports them in transitioning to, you know, a sustainable whatever, and um, putting windmills or wind turbines on their lands and, and them uh, uh, accepting that because they get more compensation. So there's all these bureaucratic uh, back and forth maneuvers that quite successfully uh, have stifled the uh, the farmers protests in the Netherlands um but um but make no mistake the, the the climate agenda is is definitely being pushed through just as hard as before and it's just that they allocated some more funds and some more um a little bit more time they gave them two more years here half a year extra there that kind of thing and unfortunately, they've been very successful in, in sort of, yeah, quieting down the protests. But um, I'm I'm very worried about the climate mystique and, and it's the ecologism that's sort of surrounding it. Have the fortunes of the farmers changed somehow with the 
BBB party. I don't quite know how you pronounce oh, it. No. But has something changed? No, no, not at all. No, it's uh, uh, yeah, maybe just for the international reader, uh, listeners. Um, so the Netherlands has a system of proportional representation, which makes it relatively easy for new political parties to participate and to and to to, to gain seats, win seats in parliament. So we had a new party, and uh, it's called BBB, and it means something like the interests, the the the. the yeah, the interests of the farmers and the citizens. That's th- these are three words that all start with a B in Dutch. So it's uh, <laughs> farmer citizens interests, and it's it it's just a this is a just an uh, it's a cartel front organization. It's just it, it it's they uh, uh, it's a movement or a political party that accepts all the major assumptions of the current dominant ideology you know they are in favor of the climate accords treaties they are in favor of the eu they are in favor of all the international immigration agreements and standards they supported covid and the vaccines and everything they support the war against russia and nato's intervention in ukraine they are just in on every subject that you can think of they are mainstream but they have this um this uh, rhetoric of being commonsensical and you know not participating automatically with the system and that kind of thing so and people have fallen for that but it doesn't mean anything for the farmers right and i yeah i was hoping this interview we weren't going to hear that um because I've got a view and um, I've expressed it many times that once you've actually had some handouts from the state, you're you're basically a prostitute to the state uh, forever. And in New Zealand, we can say we're clean from that, but we're still being attacked. And I was hoping that you were going to say something different, that um, these people are clean, they're, um, they're standing tall on principle, on property rights, on freedom, on all the things that, oh, that no. I want to stand for. So oh, it just... No just shows you how we've been suckered on this side of the planet because the news articles suggest that this is a massive movement. But I think I think what you're saying is as, as well is that farmers are notoriously, and I know it's not just farmers, notoriously single in interest. They focus on one thing rather than looking at the big picture of why this is all happening. And as we've talked about, it doesn't matter whether it's climate, uh, cars, coal, COVID, it's all part of the same same bag, really, isn't it? And yeah, I don't get so, it. De- de- definitely, but it, it's not just the farmers. It's it, this is a general uh, phenomenon that we see amongst the 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 the, 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 the normal population that is not professionally uh, occupied with politics. I mean, if you're a normal person with a job and a family and a mortgage and, and you know what, the kids going to sports in the weekends, uh, you're not going to have an awful lot of time to really analyze what is going on. And you follow the news a little bit and and you go with the flow, as it were. So that is how they've, they've managed so successfully to push this radical agenda that that never really got uh, majority support uh, amongst the population in the Netherlands. It's it's quite well documented. The majority in the Netherlands has never been in favor of mass migration, for example. A majority mm-hmm. has never been in favor of the euro currency, which did away with our national currency. 
uh, a majority in the Netherlands has never been in favor of going to war against Russia, as the referendum that I talked about earlier showed. Two-thirds of the population said no. But on all these subjects, people are ultimately maneuvered into acquiescing into the policies because they're like, with immigration, you know, so there's one, there was one real serious anti-immigration party. It was demonized in the 80s and 90s to such an extent that nobody, nobody wanted to vote for it. And, and you know, people rather die than being called a racist. It's, yeah. it's that, it's that important for people to get social proof, social acceptance. And there's the, people are, are very, very scared of all these all of these weapons of the system that are deployed against anyone who has a different opinion than what the system wants. And so we now have the word climate denier. It like rather like Holocaust deniers or or uh, COVID deniers, you know, like climate deniers. It's it, it's um it's something. Oh, people say, oh, I'm I'm not a climate denier, uh, as if as if anyone would seriously <laughs> deny that there is a climate. But <laughs> but so this is um, this is very much what happens with not just the farmers but with everyone. Um, there's some some new guy or or woman uh, guy or girl in politics who is presented as the new kid. And and people are like, oh yeah, we need something. To, we need something needs to change, but we also want to remain within the socially acceptable. So we vote for someone that is that is brought pushed forward by the system as the alternative. And then obviously, it turns out it's not the alternative. It's actually more of the same, but just a different person. Maybe. Yeah, if different um, different character playing the role, but it's still the same role. It's still the same script and. And the BBB party in the Netherlands is not going to change any any of that. Gosh, and that's that's hard to hear, as John just said. And but that's what we deserve, don't we? When we keep just arguing within the allowed narrative, not daring to say what we really, really think. And yeah, and that's why seen... I think my my up my forthcoming book may be of interest to readers internationally because I I really describe. What happens to you if you do speak out? Because I, in, when, when COVID came in 2020, I had just topped the polls in the Senate election. My party was at that moment the largest party in the Netherlands, in, in the polls, in, in seats. And I was on, on track to become a minister, a member of the government. I was hailed uh, by the, the mainstream press as, you know, the, the next the next good thing in politics and and there was a lot of there was a lot of um, enthusiasm for for me enthusiasm but then i i said the forbidden things i i doubt started doubting the vaccines i started saying that no i i i did not believe that carbon emissions have an effect on climate change uh, on the climate i i said that i i do not believe that we're all going to be one humanity uh, in the future uh, and so on and so forth i started, started saying the making the fundamental points and not just some policy nuances and and that really 
has led to a, a, a ban. I have not been allowed on television now for three years. The, uh -huh. the mainstream television does not invite me anymore. I'm not welcome in any of the talk show programs. I'm not invited to be interviewed by newspapers. There's a complete, mm, uh, we say, cordon sanitaire. I'm not sure if that word works in English, but it's, it's like a like a complete exclusion from the allowed margins of the debate. And, and as a consequence, um, other parties have been presented massively pushed by the media to take my place as the opposition parties. Mm. And that is what happened with the Farmers Party. And it, I think it's also what has happened in, in other countries where you get, so you get uh, this, um, uh, where, where did you have this? Yeah, I think it, it happened more or less between Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was pushed as as the next best thing, you know, after Nigel Farage. And obviously he wasn't. He was just a, a, a member of the cartel, a member of the mainstream, the gang, the syndicate. And so, but they, they took away the, the votes that otherwise were going to go to Nigel Farage. And they said, okay, this is going to be the real opposition now. This is the new voice. And what voters got after all, after that was more of the same. I am glad, even though you've not been invited back on TVs and other things, we've been able to see a bit of your parliamentary debates uh, theory. And one particularly that caught my attention was, again, because this, your finance minister has resigned recently, citing security concerns. In one of your debates, you began with describing St. Anthony's College in Oxford, where this lady studied as a training <laughs> ground for the Western secret <laughs> services and globalist elites. I am glad yes, some of that college. is there for posterity. Yeah. Yes, it's it, it's it's widely known as spy college, right. St. Anthony. Right. Now, the it was great theatre, by it was great theatre, by the way, great theatre. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> now the buyout has been. There's been 1.5 billion euros worth of buyout for farms being approved by you at this point. What is ultimately uh, going to happen there? The Dutch farmers, the ones who the government is going to buy out. Yes. Yeah. I um, I think that because money is not, it doesn't has been killed by governments, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, because it's not it's not backed by any anything that has intrinsic value. So governments can just print money indefinitely, ever since the nineteen seventies. Um, and so uh, this doesn't mean anything. People, okay, people will get a, a certain amount of money on their bank account. The the government will take the land, will put immigrant housing on it, and um, uh, wind turbines for the climate uh, agenda. Mm. And then uh, we will get food shortages, uh, and that's going to be a, a general thing in the western world we're going to get food shortages we're getting we're going to get more scarceness scarcity and as a consequence we will become poorer so the future i envisage is one in which the middle classes will have more or less vanished that is that is what's happening we'll get a, a massive underclass that is then of course subsidized by the state by a universal basic income with all kinds of 
you know, rationing and you get food tickets and CBDC is obviously going to be the ultimate guarantor of this envisioned system where, um, so the middle classes are going to disappear. The, the, the small shop owners, the people that, that actually have property, the people that have land, that have their own businesses, that's going to disappear. Uh, and people are going to be made more and more dependent on the state by this artificially created scarceness. Uh, and, and of course, towering above all that will be a, a small and very privileged class of super rich people and corporations that will then control the whole world. And isn't that how communism works? You know, the state becomes the only yeah. viable employer. But I, I'm looking at the website for, yes, tri well, for Tri-State City uh, Theory. It is saying it's yeah, going to house yeah. 40, the website says it's going to house 45 million people. What yeah. are these new people? Are these existing people being relocated? What are their plans here? No, they're, they're, they need new people. And it will be the end of the European race. It will be the end of the white Europe as a as a as a uh, place for for predominantly white people. That's going to be the end of it. And that is, of course, part of the agenda. It's uh, the destruction of the social fabric of society, of our current societies. In the name of and diversity. Uh, uh, well, yes. That, that, I mean, diversity is is a mantra that they use to push a certain agenda, but, but, but they are not genuinely in favor of diversity. <laughs> they, don't they, they themselves don't marry with uh, people from different ethnicities, uh, and they, they don't uh, uh, celebrate diversity of opinion, for example. They are not in favor of diversity. Diversity is a weapon to be used uh, as a pretext for pushing an agenda of centralization uh, of concentration of power and wealth and ultimately of um, um, uh, expropriation, cultural expropriation, social expropriation and uh, economic expropriation. And that's what we're witnessing. And, and the scary thing, but also the encouraging thing in, in a certain way, but the scary thing is that this is happening all over the world. And the encouraging thing is that we we have the ability, we have the power to reach out to each other now through uh, through the internet, obviously. And 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 I think that th there there is only one way to stop this peacefully, and that is by uh, raising the awareness amongst the general population. That's just what I'm I'm doing every day. I'm trying to talk to people to get people to see the the pattern behind the seemingly separate issues that John was just asking about. You see the farmers, they realize that it's, you know, they think it's only about the farmland. They don't see that the larger picture, but the same is true for the, for the small shopkeepers who get to pay more and more taxes and they have to see that it's their, their situation is essentially the same as the situation of the farmers, even though seemingly very different And the, the parents must understand that what they're doing to their children with the transgender agenda is essentially the same as you know all these things they have to there has to be a point where people see the larger picture and that is what i'm trying to do that's why i think it's so important to talk to people like you to 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 travel to to publish this book uh, in, in english 
And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing more people rise up and speak out in the way that I've been doing. Because I, I do think that although in every Western country movements like ours exist, that I am probably one of the most outspoken uh, voices in the Western world right now. So and, that's, would, and that's not because I'm the only one who thinks these things, but I'm, I just have large enough balls to say it. Yeah, well, and we're, we're thankful for that, Terry. Um, Jordan Peterson has been once or twice down south uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, and um, maybe you're aligned with him a little bit or a lot. Um, it's interesting. I talk about the concepts you've just talked about as uh, neo or new age feudalism. It's right here in front of us, and we don't even seem to uh, want to witness it or, or acknowledge it. And when I say to people uh, that they say the government must do something, and instantly I've lost them because I always say the government must not do. And that, why do we let why do we let governments pretend that they own everything and we own nothing because uh, that they don't own anything? And yet they speak as if they own everything that I own. Um, why is it that we are so weakened to let that um, let that happen? Well, this is, a, I think, a psychological uh, uh, phenomenon. People are very obedient. Hmm. Uh, this is this is true in the workplace. Uh, I'm now being interviewed by you as I am in the Dutch countryside because I run a small uh, corporation, small business that collects the, the food directly from the land, the farmer's lands, and puts it in boxes and then send it to you know, our sus subscribers. So we have a couple thousand people that have subscribed to the service and people get food fresh from the land. It's, it's actually better quality than what you would get at a supermarket, but the price is also cheaper. So it's, a, it's really a very exciting project that we're undertaking and I... I have some some time off from Parliament now, so I I spend my vacation trying to set up such a, a nice uh, small business, small small organization. But the thing that I am realizing, as I'm now effectively the director of a factory, <laughs> of a, a you know a place where we're packing boxes and sending them out, is that the people that come here to work, they are they're good people. They are they're smart people. They they when you have an individual conversation with them. They, they are thinking people, they have opinions, they're very nice. But as a group of employees, they are here waiting for me to tell them exactly what to do. What to do. And they don't even, they don't, they don't, they don't question the authority. They, they wouldn't think of trying to reorganize things if, if they're done less efficiently right now, for example. No, they just, they follow orders, they obey, and, and they do what they're being told. And I think... So that's, this is really not to say anything negative about these people. I think they're great people. I just think that in a group, people have a habit to become obedient and to stop thinking for themselves. And you see that at a micro level, like I see here at the factory, or at a larger level, society. I think people are, they like to comment on things. When they're having their coffee break, they like to say, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed this. I'm annoyed that. The prime minister is is boring the prime minister is stupid whatever but at the end of the day they don't they don't have a, a real a real thirst for revolution for for fundamental change for resistance this is a i think it, it it's probably a sociological law that 
you're going to see something like 80%, 85% of whatever group of people will more or less acquiesce to whatever it is that's being put to them. Hmm. And, and I think that um, this sociological fact uh, sheds new light on um, the mythology of our history. So, for example, the French Revolution is myth- mythologized as the revolution by the people, right? The French people rose to the feudal overlords, uh, blah, 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 and created a democracy. This is, this is a mythological story that, that is or a foundational story even of uh, our current order or the, the current society we have and but i think it's 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 very unlikely that such a thing would have happened because people do not do not revolt people do not organize themselves massively and i think by extension the same is is probably going to be true about you know whatever revolutions are being portrayed in the mainstream media for us mm-hmm. Like, oh, Syria, the Syrian people are rising against this, this brutal dictator, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's un, it, this is not in the human nature. People do not rise up against power. Maybe, you know, 10%, 15% there. But, but ultimately, change shifts in power are elite phenomena. I think that's a, that's a sociological fact. And, and that means that... Um, well, our our predicament we need at, at some point we need to organize ourselves to such an extent that we have we we actually acquire uh, elite status uh, power uh, mm. uh, financial power uh, media power and that is why I've been building uh, I've been trying to build a parallel society alongside my parliamentary work we we cannot just fight the battle in the battle of ideas because ideas do not have consequences unfortunately richard weaver famous conservative commentator wrote a book which is called ideas have consequences but i I don't think ideas have consequences in the sense at least that that they influence a public debate and then a public debate influences uh, the ballot box and then the ballot box influences uh, policy i i don't think that chain of of events is conclusive that's not what explains what's happening to us and we have to adapt our strategy accordingly yeah i think that's true i mean the dynamism of, of ideas when it's come to building gadgets and inventing things is all all fine and dandy quite different in a political sense isn't it uh, well i think that's exactly. what i'm getting out of this so um look i i think uh we've we've had a uh, 45 minutes of your time and we're very very grateful uh terry uh I never even introduced you anywhere nearly good enough. Um, clearly, this man has got a doctor of philosophy and uh, he's written lots. And I'd encourage listeners to go on the websites and study, for instance, your thesis on sovereignty. And this, I think it's on the assault of, of, of borders and things like that. Um, I've only read the conclusion of it, to be fair, Terry. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, look, there's lots there. Typical. There's- Typical. <laughs> Look, I, 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 if I've got time, I'll go back and read the rest. But it's interesting. And and Jasper Eat is the um, is the um, uh, what would you call the reader extraordinaire? She reads every word um, and quickly. 
but so we are in in your debt today, uh, Kerry, and we know that you're doing what some of us would love to see happen in our country. You're doing it in your country. There's a lot of similarities that you have. You have some friends around this side of the planet. I can tell you, uh, maybe not enough yet, but let's hope we're a growing movement. And we thank you for being the first um, foreign, uh, well, out of out of our border MP on RCR Radio Greenwash. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Your time, thank Perry. you very much. Have a great day. You right. too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And with that, we come to the end of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it and we're very grateful you could take the time to join me and Don this morning. Our thanks also go out to our guests who often make time for us at the end of a long, busy working day or early mornings before work. We're really appreciative. Our phone number is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Please make sure you signed up to the RCR mailing list to stay abreast of some exciting development in the works that should be out soon. Before we go today, here is James Lindsay recounting why the United Nations SDGs are not quite what they seem. Don and I have spoken repeatedly about the UN SDGs in our show, be there in the countdown balance sheets of how well they're tracking along those SDGs, or be it the Let's Get Wellington Moving project. So do have a listen. And if you dare, go back and listen to the full podcast of nearly two hours from which this 10-minute excerpt is taken. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The Sustainable Development Goals to Ruin Our World by the Year 2030. Goal 1, End Poverty in All Its Forms Everywhere, which is not possible. So it's a justification for massive redistribution and power grabbing. Goal 2, End Hunger, Achieve Food Security and Improve Nutrition and Promote Sustainable Agriculture, which is not only inherently contradictory, but not possible, and thus a justification for seizing control of the means of food production and redistribution or distribution uh, and tyranny and starvation. Goal three, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. I don't trust them to ensure a healthy life. I don't think they know what it means. Well-being is too ambiguous. It's too subjective. The for all indicates redistribution. Not good. Goal four, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. That's brainwashing. Goal five, achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Just remember, trans women are women. We need to take that one seriously. Goal six, ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. In other words, they're going to try to control the water, environmental justice, and so on. Goal seven, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. In other words, we have he who controls the food controls the people we have who controls the energy controls the region. We're quoting Kissinger here. There's two of them. The other one's the money. He who controls the money controls the world. That's what Kissinger said. So we've got at least the food 
wrapped up in SDG2, and we've got the energy wrapped up in SDG7. This is means for absolute totalitarian control. We also see that it's self-contradictory. There's no such thing as reliable, sustainable modern energy for all, which is a redistribution scam. Goal eight, promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Contradictory. Goal nine, build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. In other words, seize the means of production, comrade. Goal 10, reduce inequality within and among countries. That is global communism. Goal 11, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. In other words, seize the means of control of production of where people live. Goal 12, ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Again, seize the means of production, transition from an economy of production and consumption to one of caring and sharing. Goal 13, star, power, Mithra's number, move the world with that uh, funny propeller-shaped thing that the Big Dipper represents, the one that that Adolf liked. Um, Take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. So that's hand all power to the United Nations, if you remember what the asterisk said, because it says acknowledging that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is the primary international intergovernmental forum for negotiating the global response to climate change. So in other words, hand over your national sovereignty to the United Nations on the justification of fighting climate change, fixing the weather. Goal 14, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. In other words, seize control of the means of using our uh, ocean, seas, and marine resources so that they can further the agenda of the United Nations. In other words, appropriate them to the regime. Goal 15, similar but for land. Protect, restore, and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, and halt and reverse land degradation and halt biodiversity loss. So that means destroy farmers, more or less, uh, in addition to the other ones that touch on that. Goal 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. In other words, build out the common turn and the dictatorship of the sustainable and inclusive people. Goal 17, strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development, which I reiterate, it is this network of partnerships among all of the members uh, for the goals. So this is the 17 sustainable development goals of United Nations Agenda 2030. Sustainability is the tyranny of the 21st century. That is, so that is, this is the structure of our tyranny. We heard the unambiguous parallels to the program that Mao was putting in place in China in the lead up to the Great Leap Forward, which crushed China, starved tens of millions of people or led to their murders, and utterly ruined the entire place, and they called it the Great Leap Forward, just like we're calling this initiative to get this on track, the Great Reset. And so this is a very, very concerning development. The goal is to replace shareholder capitalism with stakeholder capitalism, which is a 
council-driven, a governing council-driven or a Soviet-driven, that's what that word means, governing council, um, technocracy of redistributing and controlling the means of production and resource distribution just like what you would expect and uh, from a from a tyrannical technocratic regime like communists and so uh what we're what we're facing is not just a new global a bid for a new global soviet but one that uh has this agenda of sustainability and inclusion that gives it power like we've never really seen before with tools equipping them they're equipped with tools i should say uh like uh, social credit systems that will be able to bend people to their will in a way that nothing in history has ever been able to do as we can already see in china and so um this stakeholder capitalism with the new economic system of what they it says you know sustainable uh, development or whatever, what they call this a circular economy, a snake eating its own tail, people eating their own shit, whatever you want to say that it is. Um, that's the objective. This, of course, will just degrade. The law of entropy will apply to it, and it will be suffering and poverty and destruction and death for all, except for the technocratic elite who sit themselves on top of this thing for as long as social credit systems can keep human beings crushed under their boot if you want a vision of the future imagine a human oh, sorry imagine a boot stamping down on a human face forever 1984 george orwell warned us that's what this looks like so the big target in the world we talk about targets what do we go after what do we try to do there are a lot of things we have to go after we've got to take on the american library association we've got to take on the teachers unions we've got to take on a lot of these things we've got to take on a lot of things, the bar association, the medical associations, we got to deal with these. Those are small things. The big picture targets, we have social emotional learning and education that's meant to turn into a brainwashing program to facilitate this. And we know that's their goal. They've written about it. I've exposed it myself. Other people have exposed it too. So we have to take on social emotional learning in the schools because if they get the kids, it doesn't matter if we stop them and everything else, they have the next generation. So they have the future. If they don't get the kids, it doesn't really matter what they do to us because the kids aren't going to go along with it and it's going to break them. So we must protect our kids from this, which means keeping them out of their horrific system. We must stop social emotional learning. That's a target. Another big target is what all of this is being facilitated through corporations and through municipalities and through institutions and through hospitals and through uh, nonprofits and through startups is the ESG economy. So what you do is you get the young people worked up to become an employee base that will cause every problem in the universe for their CEOs, for their, their management. Their management's afraid of them. They get struggled at work because they have a bunch of communists working for them. That's a problem. So they have a bottom-up pressure, and then they have a top-down pressure telling them they have to do this. Meanwhile, they're rewriting the social contract to be in accordance with achieve these 17 tyrannical development goals. And so this is the vision of the program for our future. We are eight years out from its statement eight years into its implementation of its 17 goals and 169 targets. I don't think it's going nearly as well as they had hoped. They're very ambitious. In fact, they're ridiculous, but it's not going as well as they hope. People are waking up. It's time to wake up to this. It's time to wake up to Agenda 2030 and to realize that it is the bid for global tyranny. The, I said that yeah, SEL, social emotional learning, and ESG, environmental social governance scoring, are the two of the big targets. The crown jewel target is a sustainable development agenda. 
the sustainable development goals themselves. Undermining these is critical. Resisting the implementation of these targets and goals and mechanisms is absolutely critical that we do. We must break this agenda because this agenda will break humanity if we don't.